try and do this in my best old lady gypsy voice, okay? I think the Romani, let's not say gypsy. Gypsy? You can't say gypsy? No, gypsy's not, let's not, we're just talking about that. You say Romani. Romani, okay. I'm going to try this in my old lady Romani voice, okay? Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayer by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. How was that? I, I don't know what that was. <laughs> yeah. Good job, buddy. Good job. Well, there hey, may be, there may be inter- witches that are offended by that. Yeah. Let's, uh, Can let's you say witches? Let's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you can say witches anymore. Because if you can't say gypsy, how can you still say witches? It's Romani. Romani, whatever. Hey, folks, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Spooktober. This thing's derailed already. We're like two minutes in. Yep. Hey, happy October. Uh, We're done with video games. We are here to talk about all things scary movies. Uh, I am Troy. With me is Brad Brad Anderson. Yeah, and we have. I want to introduce myself. Go ahead. This is my pick. Go, it's your pick, right? And we have yeah. a big special guest with us today. One of our our favorites, the one, the only, Sammy. How are you this evening? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? I was doing fine until um, you guys made fun of my old uh, Romani, Romani, yeah. Romani yeah. voice. Um, so this was your pick, Brad. What did, what did you pick this week? I picked uh, 2010's The Wolfman, directed by Joe Johnston. The Rocketeer's uh, own Joe Johnston. Yes. So this had been recommended a few times. I I think you had put it on the list when we were starting to kind of put a list of movies together to talk about movies that bombed. And then when we did the Halloween shows last year, this came up and I, I didn't have time to go back and look who sent it in. But this was like we got uh, it multiple times. This yeah, it's been requested a lot. About two or three people um, when they were saying, hey, if you're picking scary films, you got to talk about the Wolfman. Uh, so, yeah, we, it's Spooktober. We're going to talk about the Wolfman. I have a quick question for both of you, though. Uh, we we kind of dabbled in this a little bit, and I can't remember if you even gave an answer to this, Brad, but I'm curious about your answer Sammy, this comes from the, you know, the universal monsters, right? So you've got, you know, mummy, Dracula, Wolfman, you know, all of them, right? Do you have a favorite universal monster? And is that the same as your favorite universal monster film? So I've already talked about mine. Like my favorite universal monster is the Wolfman. And my favorite of the old Universal monster films is probably Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, even though that's, you know, that's sort of a, a merge of, of the comedy. But if, if you say, okay, take that one out and you're just looking at the horror movies, then it is the Wolfman and probably second to that is Creature from the Black Lagoon. But I'm curious, do you, do you guys have a favorite monster and Universal classic monster film? Uh, yeah, I'll go. Um, I, this is easy for me. Uh, I love the Wolfman. Uh, I love the original Wolfman. That's my favorite universal monster, movie monster. And I actually stand up for the Wolfman film. I think it's my, it is the best of the universal bunch. Now there's a lot of great universal monster movies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, But, um, that one is my favorite and it, it, it captured me at a very young age. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode is because of my love of the werewolf mythos, lycanthropy. I love, uh, I love that stuff. So 
It's always been my favorite, and uh, it's still one of my, as simple as that transformation is in that first film, it's still one of my favorites. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm so you're, you're, you're in the same camp as me. I mean, we're, we're wearing the Wolfman t-shirts and everything, right? Yeah. We're, we're middle-aged men with back hair. Yes. <laughs> so we're, we can relate. Okay. okay Brad, what's okay. yours? Uh, I would say my favorite is the first one I saw. Cause I had that nostalgia. It's the 1931 Dracula. I like that one probably the most. Um, and then I, I will go to bat for Bride of Frankenstein as well. So, um, those are probably my favorite out of out of the bunch. Um, yeah. The ones you all said, I, I do enjoy. Actually, there's really not any that I don't have some sort of nostalgia for or at least some sort of admiration for. Um, so, yeah. yeah, even like stuff like The Mummy, I'd go to bat for. So I think if people haven't seen those Universal Monster movies, they should go back because uh, I think they have a nice, I don't know, it's just kind of cool to see where a lot of this stuff comes from. Um, and a lot of them are like 70 minutes long. So you're good to go. So, yeah, it, 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 there's to me, it's not Halloween until we're watching a few of those during the month of October. So I, it, there's, me, there's so much. They fun. are, they are the perfect example of like really solid junk food filmmaking. And I mean that in the most positive way, like in the, a great cheeseburger. Um, they're very simple and uh, they're very well simply still told stories. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words a little bit. But I'm glad Brad said Dracula because a lot of people rag on Dracula nowadays because of its pacing and everything else. But it's still a gorgeous movie. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I hear this other and I finally got to see it last year. It's it's been on every, I think, edition of these monster films that you end up buying on DVD or Blu-ray. But the Spanish version of Dracula, which they filmed, uh, you know, at night after the the regular American production was done. I hear a lot of people talk about, well, the Spanish version is way better than the American version. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I think they're both great, but there is something about Bella Lugosi in that yes. character. Yes. That absolutely. is so iconic. I mean, it, there is a reason why that one is talked about uh, from, you know, film studies and everything else versus the Spanish version, not to right. take anything away from the other one, but I, I, I would rep for all of them. I, I think they're fun. Even even the the House of Dracula, House of you know Frankenstein, the, those to me are a lot of fun too. And how they continue to bring these monsters back and keep the, the story continuing, they're they're a blast. Yep, I agree. So we're gonna talk about <laughs> which you guys, I. You guys don't hear my kids in the background, do you? <laughs> No, no, I think no, we're good. No, we're good. Okay, we'll make sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to apologize to your listeners now in case uh, there is a, a Spider-Man fight that breaks out. Oh, well, <clears throat> I I think this episode's going to be, you know, uh, who knows what's going to happen. We've already tried to kind of get through the intro. and We butchered that. So who knows what's going to happen? Um, so we're talking about the Wolfman. And do, <laughs> I, I find this weird right out of the gate. They put the wolf and the man together as one word, but the original yeah. 1941 is two separate words. So yeah. uh, didn't even realize that until I did an IMDb search and I couldn't find it because <laughs> I was typing the wolf man. Yeah. yeah. So there's two versions of the film. There's the R rated film that is an hour and 43 minutes. That's the theatrical oh. cut. And then there is a director's cut that was one hour and 59 minutes. With Max von Sydow. Yes. <laughs> Which one did you guys watch? The uncut, the the two-hour cut. Okay. I actually watched the two-hour cut as well because I hadn't seen that. I'd only seen the theatrical cut. 
And uh, I'm, I may, well, we'll talk about this obviously, but I may have ran into some pacing issues with that. But I got to say, I really, uh, man, there's some good stuff in that unrated cut. <laughs> uh, so stuff I don't remember happening in the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did, did you guys? Did we you also guys, wanted to know that origin of that cane. We yeah. all did. We all yeah. wanted to know where that cane came from. Did you guys see this in the theater when it came out? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This Charlie a, and I were doing our podcast at the time, so we, you know, oh, I was yeah, that's everything, right. and we reviewed it for that. Uh, first time watch for me. Now, here's why. I have such a love for the first Wolfman, not just because I, I love it as a film, but my dad growing up, this was his one of his favorite films, and he continued to tell me the story over and over again when they would show these on television, and, you know, he was a kid, probably 10 years old or something, and as soon as that transformation would happen, he would just run and, and get under a chair and thought that if he was hiding under a chair, then the Wolfman wouldn't get him. And I, I, I thought that was what the most, year was your dad? What year was your dad born? Uh, 1940. Oh, so, okay. So this came out like, yeah, yeah well, so I mean, he's, he's, uh, yeah. he saw this for the first time because they used to air these things on television like crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. so his, I don't think he ever caught it the first time around theatrically. He's watching it at home and he's hiding under his chair. And it was just one of those memories that when I think about my dad and I think about the movies that we talked about, the Wolfman is one of those that came up because I'm sitting here thinking about, oh, here's my dad, you know, just maybe 10 years old or something and hiding under a chair and just totally scared of this transformation. The, the other monsters didn't do him for that. And so I've grown up with this film, watching it over and over again. And I remember seeing the trailer for this and my first reaction was no, like I, I just, I can't do it. <laughs> um, and I can't pinpoint what it was. And I don't know if you guys have this experience too. Like there are some movies and you know, we live in a world of remakes and everything else, but there, there are just a few movies where it was like, if you do a remake or you're doing a sequel to it, I, I don't know if I'm going to rush out and see it and it's going to take me forever to get around to it because it has some sentimental value. And I know the remake doesn't take away the first one or all that other stuff, but that was always my reasoning. Like, I don't even know if I would have ever watched this had you not picked it for the show because I own it. It's been sitting there. It's unopened, but I'm always like, nah, I'm going to go watch the original because it makes me think of my dad versus this one. But um, yeah, sure. yeah, that, that, that's why I never touched it before then. But we're talking about a film that uh, was two hours and it is a remake of a 1941 film starring Lon Chaney Jr., Claude Rains, and Bela Lugosi. Uh, the original 1941 film, it didn't have a rating. The, the rating would be passed. So in terms of the censorship film board, et cetera, it got its certification. If you had to rate it today, what would you guys call it? Like PG maybe? I mean, it's yeah. not G. No, yeah. it, it's PG for sure. Yeah. It deals with some some kind of, uh, well, uh, yeah, PG. Okay, a very light, it'd be a light PG, but it definitely still be a PG. Super light PG. Yeah. So that's 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 like most of the monster films, right, from that time period. And the other thing to keep in mind is this film was only seventy minutes. So historically, in in the forties, when this would came out, if it was showing in the theaters again, it might be put up with a double bill of another monster film or something of that nature. I mean, that's that's what you got with these seventy minute films. But um, they took a 70-minute film from 1941, did a total remake, two hours, brought in director Joe Johnston, and spent a lot of money. So I guess that's where we're going to start, right, Brad? We're going to go through the yeah. financials and yep. um, talk about when this thing got released. So released 
February 12th, 2010, which is the weekend of Valentine's Day, you know, because there is a slight tinge of romance in the Wolfman story. Um, so I get it. Yeah, they tried. Um, <clears throat> the budget of this thing is $150 million, which is a lot of cash. Wow. A lot of cash. You, uh, you can arguably say you can see $150 there's, million. Dollars there's on. a lot of money spent on the screen in this movie, uh, especially on, I mean, I think casting wise, they spent a lot of money on the cast. So yeah. um, domestically, it makes $61 million. Ouch. And internationally, it makes about 78 for a grand total of $139.7 million. So it does not even make back it, its production budgets. Um, and and it, February is traditionally a dumping ground, too. I mean, for 2010, yeah, it, they, the studio was uh, <clears throat> probably not now, but back in 2010, studio would dump these things, right? You, Yeah, yeah. You would think that. But when I looked back at what comes out in that month, there's actually some pretty big movies really very yeah so we'll get there in a minute um opening weekend it it comes in at second place with 31.4 million dollars made um comes behind a movie called valentine's day you remember that movie valentine's day it made 56 million dollars its opening weekend wow yeah yeah crazy because it was around valentine's day maybe yeah Yep. Um, and that had like this crazy big cast too. It was like one of those films. Um, yeah. Luckily I, I was not drugged to see that movie. That genre, um, that genre has really died. The romantic yeah. genre. Yeah. It's weird. Like it hasn't died. It moved over to Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. That's well, a good that's point. True. That's true. Yeah. Nothing ever really truly dies, but yeah, you have to wonder everything's cyclical, right? So at some point these things got to start coming back out again. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like what happened to like the rated R comedy that like basically disappeared, you know, it was big for those are on Hulu. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> uh, rotten tomatoes. This is where we also have a little bit of a problem. 34% on rotten tomatoes. Ooh, wow. Um, an audience score pretty much right in line. 33% Ouch. of, uh, audiences. So one third said this movie was not rotten. And so I mentioned, or Troy mentioned, that February is usually a dumping ground, and I would agree. But this one actually had a lot of stuff, and a lot of this stuff I've seen. Um, you have the Percy Jackson, Percy Jackson in the Olympians, the Lightning Thief, Dear John, from Paris with Love. Uh, that was the John Travolta action film. Yeah, with that John, whatever that other yeah, guy's that name John is. Yeah, that John guy. Yeah, the other John yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Frozen. Not the Frozen, the Disney Frozen, the ski lift Frozen by Adam Green, I believe. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that being yeah. that, that was quite a buzzy film when it came out. Yeah. yeah, I remember after seeing Frozen, the the other one, and I'm like, man, I'm sure there's been some kids who have seen some people fall <laughs> off of a ski lift and get mauled by wolves, but you know, whatever. Uh, Valentine's Day, The Wolfman, The Ghost Rider by a truly haunting man, Polanski. Uh, here is the one that I think is the best movie of the month. Shutter Island. Oh, um, Centurion yeah. also, um, cop out and the remake of the crazies. Hmm, wow. Well. I, just, I just bought that. I just bought that remake of the crazies. Which the is- remake of the crazies is actually really good. Um, and I also will say bird Dimmick shock and terror comes out, uh, February of 2010. So. Well, there's the silver bullet. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So my son was born in June of 2010. 
I've seen, I saw almost every one of those movies you mentioned, either in a theater or right around that time. Yeah, I've I was seen a lot, lot of films at that point. I have not seen Valentine's Day, but I've I seen, seen pretty much everything else. Um, so that, yeah, so that's an eclectic list. I, I got to say, there's some stuff in there you can obviously see that was pushed out for a typical month of February. Yeah, but yeah. Shutter Island and some of those others, I, that's an odd choice, I think. Yeah, but Shutter Island went on to be a pretty successful film, so it's like that. that the, you know, sometimes there's films that stand out, and they're like, "Yeah, we can release this whenever; it'll make money." It's not a summer film, right? And it's not a like a Christmas film. So what do we do with it? Well, we'll get it early summer, which is now the end of February. So yeah, um, yeah. So those are your numbers. That's crazy. For episode sixty nine, the Wolfman. <laughs> I, can't, oh. I can't believe it. <laughs> you just—you were not going to let that go, were you? All right. I, I, the I can't believe Shutter Island came out that. I, I mean, obviously, it probably got released in December in limited markets for Oscar buzz and things like that. But I just—I don't know. I'm kind of surprised by that. I love I love Shutter Island. Sure love you, Shutter Island. I'm sure you're going to talk about uh, Troy, and I'm probably stepping on your toes here a little no, bit. Go ahead, man. This was shot in 2008. Eight, yep. yes. It was sitting on the shelves for a while. Well, they uh, they knew they had some kind of a problem, or the studio had some kind of a problem anyway. Yeah. So anyway, yep. might be getting ahead of myself, so I'll let you go ahead. No, I. It, this is weird. So when you look on paper, when you sit down and, and go through IMDb, and let's say you've never seen the film, and you say, hey, I, wa I want to see who was involved in making the film, both behind the scenes in front of the camera, this on paper looks amazing. It looks fantastic. Yeah. This is one of those ones where you like put all the data points in Excel and you're like, all right, let me kind of see what how risky this would come out to be. And you're like, oh, actually, you know what? This could do well. Yeah. But then you put that price tag of $150 million on it, and then you're that's the part that seems a bit outrageous. Yeah. And let me preface, it would do well today given some of these folks going back to 2010, I still think we had some talent that was a little rough around the edges or even talent. So this is one of those things that if you look at the people who are making the film, there are quality artists all over the page, but it's weird because I think if you look at the timeline of it, you have some people kind of coming off of their highs, other people starting their highs and then others that are just tradesmen. So the studio likes to use them because they're dependable and they can get stuff done. And so that's where we start talking about director Joe Johnston. Now I am an unabashed Joe Johnston fan for two reasons. One, he directed the rocketeer, which is one of my all time favorite films. And secondly, he's been on the show before when we talked about the iron giant because he designed the iron giant. He came up with the concept of it. Yeah. And you know, even before he was a director, he was really known as a visual artist or a visual effects artist. So he had his hand in, you know, the original star Wars trilogy from a new hope empire strikes back return of the Jedi. He's worked visual effects on Raiders of the lost Ark, And then also for Battlestar Galactica. So he is known um, for a lot of the work that he does behind, you know, the screens, not just as a director, but also as a special effects artist. Now, when you talk about as a director, he, he has a super, interesting filmography in my opinion uh his first movie he ever directed was honey i shrunk the kids 1989 absolute banger coming out with an absolute banger i love that movie yeah big hit for him right 
it was a yeah. huge hit. And so turns around a couple years later and does what I think is his best film that he's ever done, which is the rocketeer in 1991, which yep. we, we will 100% talk about that in 2022. That's, that's on my wish list because it wasn't a hit, correct? It was a bomb. It, that's right. Yeah, it was a big bomb. But I mean, I would encourage everybody if you want to oh. talk about the the greatest movie poster ever made for this. It, it was released in summer of 1991. Go check out that Rocketeer movie poster. The, the Art Deco yes. kind of inspired. Yeah, yeah, freaking amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's done other stuff like Page Master, Jumanji, October Sky, Jurassic Park Three, Hidalgo, and so he he went through you know in terms of film directing it he sat out for a little bit did some television then came back with wolfman in 2010 followed that up with captain america the first avenger not safe for work and um most recently he did the nutcacker nutcacker there we go um the Whoa. <laughs> episode 69 yeah Whoa. there you go the nutcracker in the four mm-hmm. realms in 2018 so I, I i mean i'm a big fan you guys a big fan joe yeah yeah i think one of the things that stands out in his filmography is a lot of the stuff that he does is like period piece stuff. So you look at the Rocketeer, 1950s, I believe. Uh, again, with Captain America, you're looking at World War II. So that's a period piece. The Wolfman is early 1900s. Um, so you can see that, like, that makes sense. Like, he does period piece stuff really well. Uh, I think Captain America, the first Avenger has no business being that good. And a part of it is the direction. I think it stands out in that movie. Um, you know, I talked to you about that movie. We're like, how is this movie that good? It doesn't have any right to be that good, but it is. He he does really good with adventure themed films. And Mm -hmm. and keep in mind, the Wolfman is his only R rated film that he did. Everything else is, you know, PG 13 or less. Has anyone seen Hidalgo? I have. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Hidalgo's good. It's okay. adventure. It's kind of adventure based as well. Um, I I tell you what I think about. I, I like Joe Johnson. I really do. I, I think what I like about him the most is that he swings for the fence. It seems like um, either his films hit with me, or they completely miss. <laughs> and I kind of appreciate that. I mean, uh, I love Jurassic Park three. I think that's a really solid sequel. Uh, it's like a B movie dinosaur movie. It's pretty great. Oh it, yeah. It's pretty, it's Hold basically on. just a chase movie. I mean, there's a there's a raptor that's flying in a plane in that movie. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So uh, our, our good friend Charlie, I, I just take that, okay? That's two votes for Jurassic Park 3. We love yeah. it. You're wrong. It's a ridiculously fun hour and a half dinosaur movie. It's, yes. it's crazy. It makes no sense, but that's, yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, what it, what it does. Right. Um, but, I mean, some of the stuff he does I have no interest in. Some of the kids stuff he's done, the nut clacker. Or however you want to call it, nutcracker. Uh, <laughs> the nutcracker. <laughs> the nut. The nutcracker. I have no interest in seeing that. Uh, the page master. I have no interest in seeing that. But that's just because I'm an adult and I just don't have any interest in it. And to be honest with you, I didn't really like Jumanji. I know it was a big hit, but I didn't really like it. I thought it was kind of silly. Um, but I think for the most part, he is a really solid filmmaker who handles big budgets quite well. And uh, I can see why he was brought in because he took over for Mark Romanek on this one. And Mark Romanek is a very infamous or famous uh, music video director who's always had trouble. He evidently does not work well with the Hollywood system because he gets attached to things and it never pans out for him, it seems like. 
Yeah, he's and I think he's most known for was it one hour photo? One hour photo, yeah. With Robin Williams, also did Never Let Me Go. But you're absolutely right. I mean, and and we'll talk a little bit about the production history. But I, I agree with you, Sammy. And and the other thing, I Joe seems to be one of the craftsmen that is very comfortable with big big budget films. Like he's been working at a lot of the biggest budget films from like the 80s going into the 90s, and he seems competent. He knows how to get things done. Uh, and, and I, and like Brad said, some of his work, you look at it and you go, it shouldn't be that good, but dang it. Captain America is a great example of all of the Marvel films that it came out. It's so much fun and it's, it's a pure adventure film. And I think it does a great job in terms of character development, which you don't see a lot of times in, in the big budget stuff. I, I think he's really good at kind of fleshing out the, the characters within his movies. That's why I love the Rocketeer so much. Yeah. So let's talk screenplay real quick. We've got a cut. So this is based on The Wolfman by um, Kurt uh, Syedmak. But there are two writers for this. The first one is Andrew Kevin Walker. So I, I think everybody should know that name simply because of 1995 Seven. Seven. Yep. Yeah, he, he really kind of established himself with that movie. Yes. And a few years later, he was a script doctor on 1997's Event Horizon. We talked about that. Was it this oh, time yeah, last right. year, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, he was also a script doctor on The Game of 1997. And in 99, he did 8mm. Sleepy Hollow was in 99 as well. He was a script doctor on Fight Club. It's amazing to me how many times this guy is brought in to kind of touch up scripts of some very big sort of cult Yeah, David Fincher scripts too. Yeah, Stir of Echoes in 99. So... Uh, and, and the other person that was, um, assigned to writing this was David self who in 1999, uh, also did a remake called the haunting, which side story that was filmed at Harlexton Manor over in good old England. And while they were filming that Tabitha, my wife was studying in Harlexton Manor and got to meet everybody that was there. I, I guess she interacted with Bruce Dern and, um, didn't know who he was, and I had to like um, educate her on it that night when she's calling home. She's like, "Yeah, they're filming this movie." Is that Catherine the, uh, Jones? Oh wow! And, oh wow! I'm Owen Wilson. Yeah, oh, Owen wow. Wilson. It's Tabitha. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, <laughs> but David Self also did uh, Thirteen Days in Two Thousand and Road to Perdition in Two Thousand Two. The Haunting is that the Jan de Bont film? Yes. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Jan de Bont. Yep. David Self. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that was that the second to the last thing that Jan de Bont did. I think he did one more film after that, and he hasn't directed anything since. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. I didn't no, study he for did, that. Did he do Equilibrium? No, Equilibrium. that was the guy that wrote that Kurt, film. Yeah, that was Kurt. Oh, Vimmer, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. Kurt Vimmer. Yeah, Kurt Vimmer. Yeah, yeah. The gun. Oh, film. yeah, he did. Didn't he do Jan de Bont? Wasn't his thing Cradle of Life? Wasn't that? Didn't we talk about Cradle of Life? Oh, yeah, that's right. Didn't he do Tomb Raider. Raider films? Yeah, oh, yeah. that's right. He did. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. Okay. <clears throat> Um, Uh, let's talk music. This is interesting. Uh, Danny Elfman is listed as the composer, right? So apparently what happened was he was contacted to do the original score and then the studio and and everybody knows Danny Elfman from Tim Burton stuff, right? We we don't have to go through his filmography, but the studio said, you know what? We're not going to use that. And so they brought in a Paul Hasslinger. Who wrote I mean, a, come on, it's Oingo Boingo. Come on, Troy. Yeah, Oingo, Oingo Boingo. Boingo. Okay. Boingo. 
So they, so they bring in Paul Hasslinger who writes an electronic contemporary score. Cause I guess they were pretty impressed with the underworld soundtrack and they wanted to copy that for this film. So they, they listen to the soundtrack in relation to the film. They go, Ooh, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Well, let's go back and use the Danny Elfman score. But at this time, Danny Elfman has moved on to his next Tim Burton movie, like Alice in Wonderland or something like that. And so basically they take Danny Elfman's original score and rework it. And they bring in Conrad Pope, Edward Shearmer and Thomas Lindgren to kind of uh, rework it, add some additional stuff. But the soundtrack that is actually released on CD for this film is not exactly the soundtrack that's used in the film. So if you yeah. buy the CD to it, it's the actual Danny Elfman original score. But what they used in, in See, the film kids, is music around. used to come on these things. They're called compact discs. Compact discs. We, we call those CDs. Yes. Yeah. Troy. Already, already you're starting to get the whiff of trouble behind the scenes with this movie. Yeah. Yes. I mean, because who in their right minds like, you know what? Let's kind of do that underworld music for our period piece Wolfman movie. Like that just <laughs> sounds so dumb. You're like, no, we'll stick with Danny Elfman. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what they're thinking. Here, let's take some money and let's just catch it on fire, and then you yeah. know, you have a Danny Elfman score. What is wrong with yeah. you? Like, yeah. just leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Now, here's the other thing that most people get excited about for this film, and it's special makeup effects artist Rick Baker. Mm-hmm. So, Rick Baker, I didn't know this. He was a special effects assistant on 1973's The Exorcist. I didn't know he worked on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, he was a uh, real tight with uh, Dick Smith. Yeah, and I, I mean, he won an Academy Award for 1981's An American Werewolf in London, special makeup effects, and he was a consultant for that same year on The Howling in 1981. And, and I mean, this guy, Thriller. I mean, there's another thriller, yeah. great yeah. werewolf, right? Um, there was a there was a werewolf TV series from 87 to 88. Did you guys watch this one? It, it, uh, I did. Was it called Werewolf? It was called Werewolf. It it was kind of yeah. like um the it it reminded me of like the Hulk TV series. You know, yeah, the guys going like from town to town, wolf's and, out. You know, yeah, he wolf out, and then something would go on, and then somehow the wolf would kind of save the day. <clears throat> yep, they, he'd have to leave, and then they all but played the piano soliloquy that they would always play at the end of the Incredible Hulk. They all but did the same thing. I mean, essentially, that's what it was. It just ripped off the Incredible Hulk show. Yeah, it had a great werewolf in it, though. <laughs> so. It did. It did. I mean, let's let's talk about Rick Baker for a second. Yeah. I mean, me, uh, Troy, and I both spent an obscene amount of money on a book that weighs about twenty pounds. Obscene <laughs> amount. <laughs> we Two books. Yeah, we were both but sitting Baker. in my kitchen looking at Amazon, and we both hit purchase at the same time. And uh, immediately, the wives start texting us like, "What is wrong with you?" So. You spent a hundred and some of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway, um, Rick Baker's kind of, to me, he's kind of synonymous with the werewolf. He, he's done a lot of special effects over the years, but because of my generation and Troy's generation, he can probably relate to this. The howling was a great werewolf movie and I love the howling, but the American werewolf in London had some type of cultural impact. Uh, yes. And I think it was because of the way they decided to do the transformation which it was a decision to do it completely lit and all everything visible. And it was a bold decision, but it's, it's become such a part of Rick Baker that a lot of people forget that he's done so much other stuff. He's always been known as this werewolf guy. 
Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that because he designs great werewolves. I mean, the Michael Jackson werewolf in Thriller is pretty great. I mean, yeah. it looks kind of silly sometimes if you see it in still photos. But if you yeah, see but it I, yeah. in the video, it looks pretty okay. Uh, I know it freaked me out as a kid, <laughs> uh, to say the least. I wasn't expecting that, uh, for the record, um, back then. Um, but I think that, you know, he, the, we come from an era where the special effects guys were as important to movies as the directors themselves in some ways for genre stuff. Yep. And Rick Baker is certainly in that top five of those guys, you know, Rick Baker, Tom Savini, Rob Bottin, yeah, um, Dick Smith. And uh, there's probably somebody else I'm not mentioning off the top of my head. Screaming Mad George is a huge one for me. He did like society and some of those weird rubbery effects mm-hmm. movies. But these guys were rock stars at one point. You know, Fangoria Magazine and everything came out in 79. And, um, you know, makeup guys were like rock stars, man. Everybody wants Stan Winston. There's another one. There's one I forgot. That's a big one. Oh, yeah. But these guys were rock stars. And they, I mean, the, I think the writing was was never on the wall that these guys would ever go anywhere. They would always have work. So who ever thought that CG would come along and change their careers. It's, it's unbelievable to me when I come back and think about it. I just wanted to bring that up. So No, I, I, I think you did a great job of sort of encapsulating when you went to the video store and you saw these names. And a lot of times they would put on the video covers like effects by Rick Baker. And yeah. you had no idea what the film was. But if if you were a horror junk, junkie or something of that nature, you you immediately wanted to watch that film. And sometimes you didn't really care about the film quality, but you sat there waiting for when is the practical effect going to happen? You're going to yeah. rewind it and watch it again. And you're absolutely right. That American and werewolf transformation. I got a chance to take Cameron to see it at the AFI. And, you know, at, at that time he's, you know, uh, probably 14 years old and that blew his mind. Uh, even, even in today's standards. I mean, he still cannot just, wrap his head around how they were able to do any of that without computers. And then like you said, film it in broad daylight. Um, it is basically the end end process too. They don't like, there's no, it is from man to werewolf and let's show everything in between. Yeah. It is an absolute showstopper. I believe, uh, John Landis at one point in time said that they wanted to shoot it almost in a way that you would shoot pornography, which is show you everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the kind of attitude they took toward it. And I know Rick Baker was not super excited about it <laughs> because it was going to show all of his magic tricks off, right? Uh, and he was afraid it would show, you know, the secrets behind the magic. But the way they edited it and the way they put it all together and stuff, it's genius. I will say, though, I don't think the Howling transformation gets enough credit. Troy, you just recently rewatched the I Howling. did watch that last night, yeah. It doesn't get enough credit. Rob Bottin did a hell of a job on that transformation as well. But it's also kind of in the dark a little bit. But it's it's more goopy, Uh, especially when he gets the acid poured on his face and then he transforms. Flattery. Yeah. And and, uh, but it's so good. And, uh, you know, the other thing I'll mention is Rick Baker also worked on The Rocketeer. And, And here's another example of he will come up with makeup designs and everything. And he created the Lothar character in The Rocketeer, which is the big henchman. But he's worked ah. with Eddie Murphy on uh, Coming to America, Nutty Professor, stuff like that. His his makeup effect work is is second time. And like you said, you've already listed, you know, probably the, the big four or five. And Rick Baker, he's won two Academy Awards. We'll talk about a second one here in a second. Because before before we talk about a second one, we also have to talk about Creature Effects creative supervisor Dave Elsie. 
Now, Dave comes from a background where he was special makeup and effects and creature crew on films like Hellraiser. He also worked on Mission Impossible as a special effects makeup artist. So there's our Tom Cruise reference. He was the creative shop um, creative supervisor or creature shop creative supervisor for Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. And he's also helped design and did the makeup for Beast in X-Men First Class. So these two. That's that's an underrated makeup, by the way. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And so you bring Dave and Rick Baker together. And this is where Rick Baker wins his second Academy Award, actually for the Wolfman. So Rick Baker and Dave Elsie won for best makeup at the 83rd Academy Awards for this film. Academy Award winning film. We are we are talking about an Academy Award winning film. So I want to mention one other person behind the scenes before we kind of get to the people who are in front of the camera. And um, that's none other than uh, Rosie Bedford Stradling. So she is the construction nurse on set and worked on such things as Captain America, the first Avenger. And also another film we talked about. um, Can you guess what it is, Brad? John Carter. That's right. 2012. Yeah. (laughs) So she Rosie, really, you know, she really has a deft hand at nursing construction. Yeah, she <laughs> and, is. Uh, I really appreciate everything she does. I'm not sure I know what nursing construction is. Well, it's it's a uh, it's a skilled labor task. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's not management. Gotcha. No. Yeah. Um, and and here's the thing: on set, you have to have a nurse. So it, you know the anything goes wrong, and um, yeah, I, I get that part. Yes. Yeah, so she's gonna, the construction gonna, nurse. This is episode 69. So she specifically, so if I was on set as like like a light guy and a light fell on me, I couldn't see them because, no, she's specifically for the construction guy. She's union, so nobody else can do that work. Rosie has to do that work. She also worked on movies like Batman Begins, which I think is how she got a video game credit um, as being some on-set nurse for Batman Begins. Ah. All about the credits in that business, man. Yeah. Unsung Heroes. You missed my episode sixty nine joke uh, there because you oh. got on there, but I <laughs> sorry, she's a nurse. Yeah, who has to, who? Somebody's got to feed the babies on the set, right? Oh yep. my goodness! <laughs> there we go. Nice. Let's, let's talk about the cast. Uh, this is a pretty good cast on paper, I think. Starting with uh, Benicio del Toro's Lawrence Talbot. You you guys uh, Benicio fans? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, he's actually yes. one of my probably top 10 favorite actors working nowadays. Really? What What's the movie that kind of put him on the list for you? Uh, well, the movie that uh, that really eventually that really is his coming out party is pretty much Usual Suspects. Everybody can. Yeah, 95. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, after that, just about everything he's done, he's interesting in. He's really, really good in a movie that's not really, really great called Way of the Gun. I well, oh, yes. love that yeah, film. Yeah. I mean, it's not. I, I like it too. I like it a lot. I don't think it's a great movie, but him and Ryan Felipe are so good in that movie together. Yes, and the way it plays out and stuff. I need to revisit it. It's something probably something I need to rewatch. I point. think it's a lot better than you remember. I really do enjoy that film. I haven't seen the Sicario sequel, but I like Sicario a lot. I like yeah, Sicario's really good. Traffic's really good. Traffic's yeah. really good. I just think Benicio del Toro is an, a kind of a natural talent actor he makes really interesting decisions in just about everything he does i will say i just remember the first thing i ever saw him in was big top peewee yeah uh oh yeah that's right he played dog boy i think or something like that yeah that's like so this is like the second time he's played like a wolf character yeah 
That's right. And see, when I saw him in Usual Suspects, I was like, wasn't he in that uh, James Bond film, Licensed to Kill, with Timothy Dalton? So he's been around for a long time, but you're absolutely right. Usual Suspects put him on the map. And I think it was the Sicario film specifically, uh, because Emily Blunt's in this one, so they were both in Sicario. When when I saw that one, it I, it kind of solidified this, wow, he's really, really good. I, I mean, yeah, you don't I, have I to love say it. anything. Yeah, he doesn't have to say nothing. He can do so much with just his face and his presence and everything. And he's and, and I like actors like that. He carries a lot of weight without doing a whole lot. I, I know lost. That oh. like it's not a big deal, but that that takes a hell of a lot of talent. Yeah, I will say that Steven Soderbergh directed that movie Che, which is like a two. There's two Che Part One and Two. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's like you know, it's like a 250 minute you know movie. Like it's four hours long or whatever. Um, but it's really good. Um, he's amazing in that movie. Um, if you haven't seen it, try to carve out a bunch of time and see it. It's uh, it's really interesting. I really enjoy it. Um, I think that's one of his best works that, you know, because it's Soderbergh and it's four hours long and it's, you know, it's one yeah. of those. It's not seen by a lot of people, but it's definitely worth it. That's one of those that's always eluded me. I've never sat down and watched yeah. it. Yeah, same yeah. here. I, I think it's the time commitment yeah. sort of is intimidating. I get it. I get yeah. it. It is. I got 26 episodes of Bebop to watch. I don't have any time. To <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, well, this brings us to our next heavy hitter, Sir Anthony Hopkins as Sir John Talbot. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, there's not much to say. Uh, he won an Academy Award leading role, Silence of the Lambs, and then more recently in, um, was it The Father? That was, yes. yeah, okay, last year. So about this time period, I mean, he was doing films like Beowulf in 2007. You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger in 2010, which I think is a Woody Allen film. And then uh, he does The Wolfman and follows up The Wolfman with two films, The Right, that horror film. It's another horror film. And uh, Thor. Great. Yeah, in 2011. You know, the thing I've always liked about Anthony Hopkins is I feel like He's not afraid to take on. He just doesn't pigeonhole himself into a particular type of role. He he tries to play everything, um, yeah. good or bad. He goes for it, right? Well, he's the kind of actor who it doesn't matter the quality of the movie. He is always good. Yeah. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, I mean, he's, he's really good in that film Hitchcock, where he plays Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's been in some turds. I mean, he's been in yes. some bad movies. But- yeah. He is always very, very good. He's just one of those guys who he brings a certain, um, I don't know what it is, a certain energy to any performance he does. And he, he, I know for a fact from seeing interviews and stuff that he works really hard, but he makes it seem so effortless when he does it. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He just, I, I figure he just, you know, came out as a baby acting, doing monologues and everything else. Like he's been doing it forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's kind of fun in this. He kind of he's got some mischievous mischievous moments in this, which are always kind of fun when he does the kind of mischievous stuff. Kind of, it's kind of a, like a darker version of his uh, Zorro character, his Mask of Zorro character, a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. I, I will talk about if it if it works, but I'll say this: he he goes yeah. for it. He's going for it. Yes, he's yes. going for it. I will it. agree with that. Uh, this leads to somebody else that on paper. Whatever she's in, I'm going to watch, except for Jungle Cruise. Um, but that's uh, Emily Blunt Sour. It's not bad. Jungle oh, Cruise is pretty cool. It's pretty it cool. Uh, wait, okay. wait. What's, what's her name again, Troy? Oh, uh, Emily Blunt Sour. 
She's, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to let her hyphenate once she leaves that John guy. Yeah, I'm um, just glad you didn't make the Emily like instead of Nutcracker. You didn't. Say, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Mess- I'm not messing up my future wife's name here. Um, <laughs> she plays Gwen. Uh, I think a lot of people. Did she come on the scene really with Devil Wears Prada? Was that the one that was kind of? I would say her? so. Yeah. Okay. I don't know where I would have seen her before that. Um, and I never even saw Devil Wears Prada, but I remember her making an impact there. Yeah. But I'd forgotten she was in this movie. I started watching this movie and I was like, okay, cool, man. Anthony, how do you go to the tour? They're going to go at it again. Cool, man. Oh, Emily Blunt's in here. That's cool. I forgot all about it. It is. See, I, I feel like this is a case where her star is starting to rise because if you look at the stuff that she was doing after this, I mean, she did the adjustment bureau, uh, salmon fishing in Yemen, which is with Ewan McGregor, which is great. I love that film. Um, Edge of Tomorrow in 2014, Sicario in 2015. Amazing movie. Edge of Tomorrow is so good. Yeah, I, I think Edge of Tomorrow is where all of a sudden I was an Emily Blunt fan and immediately was like, well, maybe I should go back and watch some of these films that she had done before. So, me, do you guys know the working title to the sequel to that film? Live When It Live, Die, Repeat. It's, it's Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. That's the, oh, name, yeah. That's yeah. the name of the sequel right now. Because originally they wanted to call the original one, right? Live, die, and repeat, which is a great title. Yeah. But I think they really ought to think about it. Edge of Tomorrow 2 might be a better than live, die, and repeat, and repeat. That's yeah. It. Well, didn't, didn't, didn't when it came out on Blu-ray or something, it was a combination of those two titles. So it was Edge of Tomorrow, they live, had die, both and repeat. Of them or, there. Yeah. 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 It was real confusing. Yeah. Um, you know, I got a, I'm a shame game here. I've never watched it. I own it oh, on Blu-ray. I've never what? watched it. Yet. What? 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 That, what? You need to make time for that. Yes. That needs to be watched immediately. Yeah, I haven't watched it. I think and your, I, and your son will like Doug it, Lyman. too. Your yeah, son I'm a big fan of Doug Lyman and a big fan of uh, Tom Cruise. There's no shame in my game. Yeah, it's it's a oh. it's a great sci-fi monster action movie. It's so good. Yeah. Well, we like that Tomorrow War, so I think we'll like this. Yeah. We just haven't gotten to it. The last person I want to talk about is Hugo Weaving, who is the man you cannot... When that voice comes on, you go, oh, that's Hugo. Uh oh, he, you like Hey, Troy. <laughs> Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. He plays Aberlene, which was actually based on Frederick Aberlene, a Scotland Yard inspector that investigated Jack the Ripper, which they make reference of that in the film. Uh, what? Matrix, Lord of the Rings, and V for Vendetta. I mean, come on. Yeah. He's in some of the most important, I don't know, fantasy science fiction films of all time right there. Yes. And you can't, I mean, he's the voice of Megatron too in Transformers. Yeah. I mean, those are big sci-fi films. I, I don't like any of those, but they're huge sci-fi films as well. That's true. Yeah. We can't he's discredit that. that. Didn't really, he didn't really catch on to middle age really. And, but when he caught on, he, he really found his niche. I mean, he really did. And uh, he's got a great face. I can see why he's gotten all the work he's gotten because nobody looks like Hugo Weaving except oddly his daughter. Ooh. Oh, no, I'm going to go Google that later. <laughs> okay, I'll have to look. You saw the most recent Bill and Ted. Uh, I think she was. The, oh, that's she was right. She, You're right. It is a female Hugo Weaving. It's kind of. That's kinda scary. Like, yeah. No, you're right. Um, he's, he's got a unique face, but I love his voice. I, I He could read right. the phone book and I will listen to it. It's so good. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. I think when I saw the cast for this movie, I thought, man, Anthony Hopkins, Hugo Weaving and Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, the billing on this is great. Yeah, the dialogue alone is going to be amazing. Yeah. And, you know, 
they're going to talk and I'm going to be into it and, and all that good stuff and uh, more to come on that. Well, yeah, I'm telling you on paper, on paper between the director, the, the screenwriter, I mean, the special effects, the construction nurse alone, this is a, she's the glue that's keeping it all together. It is really is. It really is the best nurse construction I've seen in a film. In some I know. I, I just, this had success written all over it. However. Except for the fact that it costs $150 million. Well, and some. Nurse, some, nurse construction isn't cheap, man. Yeah, that's right. Apparently not. She probably got 20% plus points on the back end, which is, I you know, good for her. Good for her. Um, Sammy, you talked about this a little bit, production. So. Universal Pictures actually announced that they were remaking the film in 2006. Now, keep in mind, Universal Pictures have had a lot of success with taking these classic Universal monsters and and sort of updating them. So they had the Mummy franchise, uh, even that, um, was it Dracula Untold, uh, which came out after this one, was internationally a pretty big hit. I mean, it, it made its money. Um. And in February 2007, director Mark uh, Romanek was attached to direct. We talked about this. He left in January 2008, so he worked on it for a year, but he left over, quote, unquote, creative differences. And a lot of it had to do with the budget, apparently. So the studio says, man, we need a director because we're going into production. And they decided to meet with, now listen to these names. Brett Ratner. This first one. Mm, yeah. Brett no, Ratner. No. Frank Darabont, Bill Condon, Martin Campbell, and James Mangold. They were all approached to direct this property. And so finally. All of those, all of those are, regardless of your thoughts on those directors, all of those are solid, big budget filmmakers. Yes. Right? They can they can handle big budget movies. To varying degrees of quality. Don't get me wrong. But think about some of the stuff all those guys have done. This kind of is in their wheelhouse. I, yeah. I would agree. Absolutely. Yep. And, and, and they're probably not the most argumentative with the studio. Yeah. At this point in time, if you're firing someone because of creative differences, you want someone to come in that will be a studio guy. Yes. You need you need somebody to take over because now you've sunk your money into this and you got it. You, you've committed. Yeah, you gotta do. You gotta get somebody across the finish line. So there's already been a year of pre-production. You're getting ready to go into filming. You know, your director leaves. You, you got to go with somebody dependable. So in comes Joe Johnston. Now he comes on board February 2008, three weeks, three <laughs> weeks before photography. And so what does he do? He hires David Self to rewrite the script. Three weeks before they film. And that is kind of the main reason why CGI was employed on the werewolf transformation versus Rick Baker trying to do kind of practical effects or recreate what he did with things like, you know, uh, American werewolf in London. And they should have time, right? They should not have time to, cause all the, you have to pre-plan a lot of that stuff. Um, if you're going to do practical effects, how are you going to do it? What's it going to look like? You know, Pre-busying a lot of that stuff. They hadn't made up their mind what they were going to do with it. So yeah. um, we'll, we'll talk about the the importance of the werewolf transformation scene. But, you know, three weeks going into filming, if you don't have a concept of how you're going to introduce it and sort of deliver some shock and awe to the audience, then you're left with only doing it via CGI, right? Yeah, uh, you have to do a post. If you're not going to do a pre-production, you got to do a post-production. That's right. 
So it was shot in 2008. Sammy, you talked about this. It wasn't released until 2010, so it sat on the shelf for quite a while. And obviously, you know, couldn't make up their mind on music. Um, we'll talk about... So at the, at the time of the initial 2008, the budget was reportedly, I think, around $85 million, which I think is a little bit more reasonable for this film. So you're looking at 85 as opposed to 150. Yeah. And there were a lot of reshoots too. So lots of reshoots. Yes. I'm assuming Romanek wanted more money. Yes. He did. I mean, usually if a director leaves over budget, it tends to be because they don't feel like they have enough. Yeah. I don't think, which I don't is, think anybody's like, look, you gave me too much money. I'm out of here. <laughs> which no, is weird no. because if you, to Brad's point, if you look at it, they come in with one budget. The guy goes, it's not enough money. But by the time the studio is done, they probably were going to spend what, you know, Romanek originally asked for to begin with probably less you know because you're not restopping and starting and all that stuff yeah and yeah and here's some fun facts um in terms of how uh i I, it was a shit show let's just call it that it was a shit show behind the screen so the bear that the gypsies um you can't say gypsies but the internet says gypsies this is they put okay fine um it was actual recycled animation from the golden compass from 2007. So they basically took a polar bear, that animation and changed it to a grizzly. So that's the bear you get in this film. So wrong. You get a white bear, they paint it black. Hey, hey, we did it. Hollywood's been doing that for years. Yep. Yeah. And we talked about the Max von Sydow cameo. So if you, if you saw the theatrical cut only, only saw this in theaters or you selected theatrical on your Blu-ray, you didn't see the handing off of the cane or, or, or Max's little cameo in there. You right? didn't see Max von Sydow. Yep. Sorry. Yeah. That's a good, and that's just kind of a shame because that's actually a pretty good little scene. I don't know why they got cut. Uh, I, I kind of like that scene, but mostly as a, just a fan of werewolf movies and knowing that that's kind of talking about the beast of uh, whatever that. Luv- Luv- Is it Luv- whatever. Uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brotherhood of the Wolf. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I know why it got cut because it literally, that came plays yeah. no part of the movie at all. It's only the only thing great about it is watching Max von Sydow and Benicio del Toro work together. Yeah, That's yeah, cool. I agree. It's a great callback to the 1941 movie. Yeah, it's what it is, right? But it serves no other purpose other than it's a great callback to the 1941 film. Mm-hmm. Here is my favorite thing I found about this film. Just it made me laugh. So in 2011, okay, so the movie's been out for a year. Ron Meyer, the president and chief operating officer of Universal Studios, said that this movie was one of the two worst movies that Universal Pictures ever made. The other one that he singled out was Babe, Pig in the City from 1998. So in his opinion, the two worst films that Universal Pictures ever made was 2010's The Wolfman and uh, 1998's Babe, Pig in the City. Uh, Picking the City was a bomb, wasn't it? Yes. I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about it because it was, but it's also directed by George Miller. Yes. <laughs> which I oh. always find is like it's insane. Also, oh, it's also an amazing movie, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I agree. <laughs> I think it's a little ahead, of, you know, before it's time, but it is. It is. Nobody was ready for that one. Um, yeah. Ron Meyer doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not the, I'm not the world's biggest Ron Meyer fan. He's made some stupid comments over the years. He, he's made a lot of stupid comments. Let's be honest. But studio executives, they. And they don't know, <laughs> they don't know what a quality movie is compared. I, again, I'm not saying that this movie's a masterpiece by no, no, by no, by no time. But, you know, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying, I guarantee you, Ron Meyer has had his hands in worse films than this one. I agree with that. I mean, this, 
now I'll say this, it, the potential on paper and everything that you're bringing together would the studio go back to it and say, we spent all of this money and yes, we've, we had these problems and reshoots and we did all of that. Were they disappointed in it? Absolutely. But this is a case where I think everything that you needed to make a great, like a masterpiece horror film, it is there in front of the camera, behind, behind the camera. But this is no masterpiece. Let's, let's be totally honest. The question is, is it a total bomb and does it deserve sort of the accolades that it's gotten either through the critics with its 30 or 40% Rotten Tomatoes or even the box office return? But, you know, this is the same old story that as soon as the studio gets involved, you start having budget issues. You can't decide on what music you're going to use. Um, you don't know what ending you're going to go with, et cetera. You are going to get a troubled production and hence, uh, you know, 90% of the time a troubled film. But that leads us to our thoughts on 2010's The Wolfman. So, you know, I've always let me let me say this. I've always yeah. wanted to ask. You know, there's a if you guys have listened to the Gentleman's Got a Midnight Cinema over the years, yeah. people who listen to this. You know, we have a friend inside the business, David Alcock, who's mm-hmm. on the show sometimes. He actually was a storyboard artist on this, and I've always wanted to ask him because sometimes he gives us little little bits of juice, like he knows when a movie he's working on is going to tank or not. He kind of knows. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we had the other last time we talked to him, we had mentioned Dr. Doolittle because he had worked on that, and he said, I will not talk about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I so you, can, you can always tell, you can always tell, and you know, if you know anybody in the business, and I'm not a trust me, I'm not in the business, I have to work for a living. Um, but you know, the few people we've met over the years who actually we've talked to and stuff, they they say you can tell pretty much from the get go. Uh, how things are going to go. You just, you pretty much know. And that I guarantee you, I, I, it sounds like everything we just talked about, it sounds like this film, it was up against it from the from the start. Uh, obviously. I mean, uh, if your studio is not rushing to get your product out there and get its return on investment, there is a problem, right? Yeah, if they're willing to sit on $150 million, there's probably a problem. Yeah, and, and we've talked about instances. I mean, uh, Big Trouble in Little China is a great example the test screenings went through the roof. I'm, you know, everybody thought that they, that worked on the film thought they pretty much had a box office hit. The studio didn't have a lot of faith in it, but they had faith in this other little film that they did called aliens. So yeah. sometimes timing will hurt. I mean, well, yeah. And then how stories. do you market, how do you market big trouble in little China? Like what, what kind of movie is it? Yeah. And, and there are some things like the iron giant, since we're, we're talking about Joe here, uh, I, I mean, timing hurt that thing more than anything, but the studio was smart enough to kind of go, well, let's keep investing on it and then look at the the classic status that it's obtained at this point. But, you know, I'm I'm really curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this because this is a first time watch for me. And full disclosure, I, I gave you the reason why I've held off on watching this thing because of my love of that one from like a sentimental piece in the connection with my father, but also how much I love that character in that film. But you guys have watched this, you know, a couple of times now. Um, and, and I'll start with you, Sammy, you're, you're revisiting this again. Um, you kind of go in knowing about the film and knowing what to expect. What was it like watching it again? And, and what were your initial thoughts? Um, so I was pretty excited to go back and watch this. I enjoyed it in the theater. Uh, it was a nice, uh, crisp 100 minute long film. And, uh, I may, I chose to watch the unrated cut. I always tend to watch the unrated cut or the director's cut. I think most of us film buffs do. 
Um, I think we we feel like that's probably what the director wanted, to, and and we we love the medium because it is a a director's medium. It's something you know. All three of us follow directors. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, actors, directors, right? I'm, I mean, you know, we don't follow. Some of us do follow the construction nurse, but <laughs> not all of us do. Um, but it is important uh, that uh, you know. For me, if somebody puts out an unrated cut, I tend to watch that. I really wish I would have went back and watched the other cut now because I feel like some of the stuff I watch, as, as much as some of the stuff in the unrated cut I liked, and I think it's much more violent. And Brad, I don't know, since we've seen both cuts, I would assume. I, I think that's true. I think this uh, unrated is much more gory. Yeah, um, there was I'm going to say. some very surprisingly gory moments in this movie. <laughs> uh, there's, actually, there's a great decapitation scene that I think is actually one of the funniest moments in the movie. <laughs> the guy walks into the quicksand or the yeah. mud and stand there screaming. He just swipes his head right off. Uh, anyway, um, first thing that struck me rewatching it, wow, this movie looks amazing. And they really put all that money on the screen. And how can this go wrong? And then I spent the next 25 minutes going, is anything going to happen? Because if not, <laughs> I'm going to go eat a sandwich. <laughs> Because <laughs> it, it it immediately almost from the get go comes almost to a dead stop, like about twenty minutes into it, before it gets going again. And uh, I don't remember that happening in the the other cut. So either I was high on lycanthropic fumes when I went <laughs> saw the film in theaters, or this thing this thing is just front loaded. I mean, there's fifteen minutes of difference in footage between that two cuts, right? That's a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot in movie terms. That's a lot. Yeah, and that Max von Sydow scene is only like three or four minutes, maybe. Yeah. So then you got like another 12 minutes of somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. So I don't know. I, I think I was really excited to revisit it. I don't, I will not, I will say this. I still like the film. I still think it's gorgeous. I still think I like watching these actors work off each other. I like watching uh, Benicio del Toro and Hopkins work off each other. You wouldn't think, first of all, for a minute, that uh, they're related in any way. Um, yeah, that, they try to. Sell that it. was kind of hard to with, believe. <laughs> well, they sell. They sell it with the dark-skinned love. Yeah, of Anthony Hopkins, the the quote-unquote gypsy Romani. I'm sorry, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't say gypsy. Yeah, that he was once in love with. So they kind of sell it there, and they decide not to give him an English accent by saying he went to America and all that kind of stuff. Okay, I'll buy all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll give you a dollar for that. But it. It just seems so lost in the front end that by the time you get to the good stuff, and I don't really mind the CG werewolf stuff that much. I think it's pretty well done. I wish more of it was practical, but I, I like the werewolf design. I like the way Benicio del Toro looks as a werewolf. He's kind of, he's almost kind of superhero looking. He's got these strange long arms, and of course, he's got the dog legs, but he's got this big buff chest that kind of. <laughs> <laughs> out like an old man who you know is very proud of his chest hair and i kind of like the way that stuff looked i don't know I, I i have very mixed feelings on the film going back into it i i both enjoyed it because i like werewolf films so much and I, i've seen some true god-awful werewolf films in my lifetime but and this is definitely not the worst one i've ever seen but it is so slow and it seems needlessly slow like it's you know, you, you got a guy who has the curse of the werewolf on him. List 
get him going here. Let's figure <laughs> something out. I don't think his first transformation is like until like an hour into the film. As yeah. I say, he doesn't have the curse for like a good 45 minutes. I mean, it, it takes him a while to get to the curse. Now, there's, I think American Werewolf in London, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think, I think it almost is 40 minutes before you get a transformation in that. So I don't think that's the problem. No, I think the, the problem howling, is. the howling's the same way. I mean, just watching the howling, you, you yeah. get, uh, when D Wallace is in the theater and you hear the noises, but you don't see anything, you actually yeah. don't get to see anything for the first hour more or less. I think yeah. But it's problem. more like how it feels like yeah. this hour feels like an eternity. Well, that's it. <laughs> That, that, that's the problem. The problem is no suspense there. Joe Johnston, as much as I love him, he is heavily reliant on the jump scare in this movie. Yes. Oh my God. The sound design. I'll, I'll give it this. The sound design on this movie probably caused some damage to my speakers <laughs> because it is when, whenever the werewolf decides to pop up on screen, I, I mean, my whole house shook. It was so loud. And I was like, why are you doing that? I mean, it was giving me a heart attack. Or and I was, the birds or the dogs or the yeah. fake visions or the other thing that I. Why this annoyed me, I don't know. But oh, here we go. Why do they have to put animal sounds on the soundtrack? Anytime you see a bush sculpted in an animal or see a stuffed animal like <laughs> Yeah, I, I know it's a tiger. It goes, <laughs> I, I get it, right? Cow goes moo. I don't need the soundtrack when I see a cow bush. I, I know what sound, if that were a real cow, what, what that bush would what make. What does the fox say, Troy? Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Hey, you know what? This is, episode, <laughs> this is episode 69. You can look at as much cow bush as you want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but, yeah, I, I noticed that, too, with even my setup. It was... You get some dialogue and say that, wow, and you're like, oh, what? that bird was really loud, and it was well, it was jump scares. So I know for for I know we're you know we're big time we're big time. All three of us have nice sound systems. We want to bring the theatrical experience home. That's yeah. us. Okay, mm -hmm. we're all buffs that way. So it does sound a little bit like it's like oh yeah our fancy sound systems, but if you watch this film on a nice system, I guarantee you one of the first things that will come to mind is. The sound is all out of whack on this thing. You're turning it up and down all the time. Yeah. That's annoying. It's such a distraction. Dude, I had to turn the subtitles on because <laughs> I couldn't turn it up loud enough to hear what the hell they were talking. But Ichio Del Toro, first of all, is a bit of a mumbler. That's kind of mm -hmm. his style. Yeah. Okay. But I couldn't understand what he was saying, so I turned it up, and then I get a werewolf vision. Yeah. And then, it, you know, everybody in the house will be like, holy shit, what's going on? <laughs> it's, it's like, you know. You'd think after all these years of sound design, somebody would figure it out. But I don't know if somebody was trying to show off here or what they were trying to do. But very rarely will I ever complain about sound in the movie. But this is definitely one where it is way out of whack to me. It's very inconsistent. And, that, I, yeah. and the pacing yeah. and everything else. Look, it's it doesn't have to be scary for me to be a werewolf movie. That's not important to me. What's important to me is the pathos of the werewolf. And... It does get interesting once Benicio starts to transform, but even then, I don't feel like it digs deep enough. It's very surface level, and it almost feels like a movie that they thought that was going to make money, and they would be able to explain it better in part two because they didn't know what they got a hold of with part one. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I still like it, but I like it less than I did the first time I saw it. Mm. Okay. And you think it's because you didn't watch the theatrical guide. You, you actually think this is a case where the director's cut is kind of hurting the viewing performance. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to 
watch the next, the theatrical cut anytime soon. But I, I have to wonder if maybe that might be, I think, you know, that 15 minutes, I, I, I bet that's all front loaded. I bet, I bet it's mostly front loaded because I don't remember most of that stuff happening. I definitely don't remember the Max von Sydow moment. Right. Because it wasn't there. And I, I just felt like the pacing was way off. I mean, I mean, I, I have a feeling I'm not the only one that thought the pacing was way off in the first 45 minutes to an hour of this thing. Well, let's let's see, Brad. What what are your yeah. initial thoughts on this thing? Well, let me take you back in time to August twenty uh, first, two thousand nine. I saw the trailer. I saw the trailer for this film <laughs> in front of Inglorious Bastards. Oh, and then I saw this trailer again another four times because I saw Inglorious Bastards five times in the theater. Uh, but uh, so I saw that trailer a lot, and it was the "I'm going to kill all of you" trailers, which to be honest with you, is the best part of the film. Um, anyway, um, I like Sammy have mixed feelings about this movie. I think give me a period piece, early 1900s in foggy old London town or somewhere in England. Um, I'm going to be right there with it. Like I, I like that period stuff. That's a weird statement. Um, I like period pieces. Um, and I like the setting and, the fact that you have to listen to this script and these people talk and these are like fantastic A-list actors and I'm completely bored with everything that they're saying. Um, I don't believe any of the relationships. I don't believe the, the father-son relationship. I don't the, – the Gwen Lawrence relationship I don't get um, – I, I just, yeah, that never feels real. That no, it's funny you you say that because this time around, I was watching. And I was like, "There's no way Emily Blunt's character is interested in this sweaty douchebag." There's just no yeah. way. Wow. And, and whoa, so, whoa, so, whoa! He taught her how to skip rocks. Pardon. Yeah. I think I yes. think I think she's being wooed pretty pretty heavy with that. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I believe your brother's widow is off limits. Not, I believe that hey, there's an unwritten law. If you can no, teach her to dude, skip rocks. Dude, I am rocks, not having sloppy seconds after my brother. Okay. Skipping there's a rocks. few people in this world I don't want to be Eskimo listen. brothers with, and that's with my real brother. Yeah. Well, no. listen, skipping rocks totally Nolan voids that okay. whole off limits thing. Okay. Yeah. I okay. read it on the well, internet. It's like pur- purifies the. Uh, yeah. uh, no. Yeah. No. Purifies the cavity. Um, because you got to teach you know, her to like use the arm this way and move your hips into it. And, you got to uh, flick yeah. the wrist. Flick, flick the, the wrist, wrist with your hips yeah. to skip. That I mean, route. it is uh, it is very true. That I mean, that is that is accurate skipping rock uh, teaching. Yeah, every, but everyone knows that if you don't know how to skip a rock, I think you're a moron. So anyway, don't call um, Emily a moron. Listen, no, I won't. Okay. I would definitely not. Um, I I just think uh, again, and this is a lot of the stuff that Sammy said. That first hour is really painful. Um, I just want the Wolfman to do Wolfman things. And that's kind of a problem. If you think about the Wolfman is he's only the Wolfman once a month uh, during a full moon. So you're like, okay, I get it. Um, And the, and this, this film does have a cool premise. Like, okay, he's turning into the Wolfman. This, these people know he's going to be the Wolfman. They want to try to like contain him. So he doesn't go on a rampage. Um, I could have probably used more of the asylum stuff. I liked that piece of it. Um, it feels and, like that feels like the uh, what's his name, Kevin Walker, Andrew Kevin Walker is that his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It feels like him. It really does. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I will tell you what I don't want in films is that running animation of the wolf running. I think that looks atrocious in this movie. It never looks good. I don't think that ever looks natural or anything like seeing a human being run like a wolf is dumb. It, it just <laughs> looks really bad. I hate it. I hate it in everything. Didn't they do um, that? They did the. Of course, they've done it in the Planet of the Apes thing. But then they do that in that uh, that Shyamalan movie, right? Split. Didn't he do that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, did, doesn't Beast do it There's, in the X Men too? Well, yeah, yeah, but it's he does it a little actor. different. There's a stuntman behind the scenes who's really, really good at doing that, and I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, but Everyone it just works. doesn't look. Na- I mean, it just doesn't oh, look right. Um, it, it doesn't. It looks stupid. Um. Sorry, it just does. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like the gore in this movie. I think the gore is really good. Um, there's a lot of it in that uncut version. There's yeah. a lot of decapitations. I think there's like four decapitations in that uncut version. I mean, there's guts and everything. There's intestines flying around. Yeah. It's awesome. If um, you're doing that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, I just never thought it got to the heights that I was anticipating, even seeing it again and knowing that I was going to be somewhat disappointed in kind of the final product. Uh, even going in with that kind of low expectations, it still barely kind of beat those. I just think they try to overcomplicate the Wolfman story and it doesn't need it. It just needs a guy turning into a wolf, uh, maybe trying to have a romance with a woman and society coming after him. Like that's all you need. And yeah, the werewolf doesn't need family history. It's it's one of the few creatures that I think one of the scary things about it is the randomness of the attack. Yeah, I mean, yeah. exactly, exactly. And like, there's this weird underlying like, like topic of racism in this movie. Like, if you're yeah. like, okay, the the woman, his mother was from another race. They literally say that. There's like this whole Romani slash slash gypsy thing going on. Like, can't as soon say, as there's yeah. can't say gypsy problem. Yes, I was <laughs> quoting the movie. But like as soon as something happens in this town, like they're like, oh, it's gotta be all those gypsies, you know. There's can't, those are the problem. Say, those say gypsy. I know, Troy, I'm saying from the movie. <laughs> but uh, again, that just never is really fleshed out either. Like, do we need that in our Wolfman movie? Probably not. Um, so it's a fine movie. It's just fine. And I'm glad I watched it again. Like Sammy, I wish I probably just would have watched the um, just the regular theatrical cut, um, unless there's way less gore because I think that gore is actually kind of cool. Um, but the "I'm going to kill all of you" scene, I think, is a standout scene. It's one that I remember probably beat for beat um, from seeing it the first time. Like it stays with you, and I think that says something about a film. When you can literally see a movie once and you know when you see this scene again, you're like, oh, I know exactly how this plays out because it is like fried in my brain on how it goes. Um, that that scene is, I think, is amazing. Um, and if the original you, plan for that scene was to give Rick Baker a show-stopping moment again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and again, when it comes to the transformation into the werewolf, a part of it is it should be painful. Like you are literally turning into a different creature. Your bones are moving around. And so I think they get that right. And, uh, but it just doesn't, I don't know. It just never gets there for me. That, that original idea, I believe was Rick Baker is going to blow your minds again, 
by transforming Benicio del Toro into a werewolf with physical effects in a straight jacket. And I remember reading in Fangoria magazine, because I was still reading Fangoria at that time, and other magazines, that Rick Baker is going to win another Academy Award, which he did. Yeah. But mostly for design elements here, not really for the effects, because the original plan was for him. He had some great ideas on how to do this. I, 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 I hate that we didn't get to see that. But that, again, is part of the curse of this movie, which was nothing was well planned out. Everything was a rush. So they had to kind of resort to CGI way more than they wanted to. Right. Well, yeah. It, like, and to be fair, I don't think the CGI of that part is bad. Like, I always would prefer practical, but it doesn't look terrible. And it holds up in, you know, 4K and all that stuff. Like, it's it looks good. It looks good. <laughs> all right. Let's, yeah. hear, let's hear Troy's that that says we we know that this movie's coming in with a chip on its shoulder. It is. It, so the, you're absolutely right. I, I I'm like you. I love werewolf films. Like I I will sit down and watch all the Paul Nashi uh, werewolf films. I, I love them. Yeah. I which are varying degrees 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 <laughs> of quality. They but are. Works there. Yeah, they they are all over the place. You'll find one that's you know, hey, that's pretty good. And then the others you gotta. You got to get through some junk, right? And um, I, I mean, even in my head, I'm, I didn't even know there was like eight or nine Howling films. And I'm yeah. sitting there, I'm like, dude, I think I've seen half of them. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for a great werewolf film. This one has a chip on its shoulder because it said, oh, we're going to take the original characters. We're going to take the original story and we're going to remake it. And I'm like, okay, well then... If let's talk about the things that make that 1941 movie so beloved, in my opinion, the the first thing is that Lon Chaney as Lawrence Talbot, he is my favorite actor. I, I to me, he beats Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff. All of them. I love love Lon Chaney. He has this weight to his performance and this sadness. That through all of, even in like House of Frankenstein, all those where it kind of gets goofy, how they keep bringing people back. And even something like Alvin Costello, you know, meet Frankenstein. He's great in that because he's in this sort of comedy setting, but he still manages to bring this Lawrence Talbot, um, you know, sorrow to his performance, which is just unmatched in my opinion. So yeah, he's, he's one of the great unsung actors to come out of that era of horror films. Yeah. If you, if you watch some of his later cycle stuff, like Spider Baby, which is considered a cult film, if you watch that, he is awesome in that movie. I mean, it's an unbelievable performance in a B movie. And even in bad movies, like Alligator People. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's, he's an actor that as soon as um, I, I recognized him, then I would watch something like High Noon and go, oh, that that's Lon Chaney Jr. I mean, I've I've loved everything that he's in, but his his what he does with that Lawrence Talbot character is iconic, I think, in in just film history. So good in it. So if if you're if your character's gonna come in and be called Lawrence Talbot in a movie called The Wolfman, doesn't matter if you squish him together or put him apart, uh, that's the first thing I'm I'm kind of going, okay, well, what do I think of you in relation to Lon? And I know it's unfair, but it's what's happening in my head. The other thing is uh, Lawrence Talbot's relationship with his father, Sir John Talbot, played by Claude Rains in the 41 version. They manage to establish a solid bond 
and even some chemistry within a 70 minute film, which I think is rare. And again, I would put the reason why that's so successful is because of Lon Chaney Jr. and Claude Rains. They work so well together. Yeah. Another great actor who doesn't get enough. These horror actors, they really got, this was the beginning of you don't do horror films yeah, because they taint your whole career. And Lon Chaney Jr. never got past it. So, yep. uh, well, Bela Lugosi never really got past it either, unfortunately. But these were all great actors. Boris Karloff's a great actor. Claude Rains was a great actor. All these guys were great actors. It's just, unfortunately, horror, as, and this is a big subject, so we won't get into this, but it's always been frowned upon in the industry, right? It makes all the money, but nobody wants to talk about it. And, and at some point, the audience only sees you as that character, right? So if you do something so good... And I can totally understand this too. Anytime Lon Chaney Jr. would show up in a leading role, you go, well, there's the Wolfman because he was so good as the Wolfman, right? So th those are the two things right out of the gate where I'm like, okay, I'm already measuring this film against those, but there's two other aspects as well. The, the third thing that comes to mind is that it's the tragedy of the story. What makes 41's Wolfman so good is... At the end, for those who haven't seen it, big spoiler, right? You basically have Lawrence Talbot who realizes he has this curse now and he realizes what he's doing. But his father also comes to the realization that the only way to set his son free is to kill him. And the father kills the son. And it's an act of mercy at the end of the day. And that is that tragedy it is a it's just a huge gut punch and for a film from 1941 a 70 minute film that it delivers the gut gut punch in spades and again it comes down to the performances and everything else by those two characters and that story element and then the last thing which is where i think most werewolf movies gravitate to i think the where the rare ones like american werewolf in london recognized those first three elements and said, yeah, we have to create this tragedy. We have to create a character relationship between two people that is going to amplify that tragedy. And then we also have to have a really good central performance of the person who's cursed. Right. And I think American werewolf in London hits all those beats. They just do it in a different way. It's not about the father. It's now about the, the nurse um, who kind of becomes the girlfriend over a short period of time. Right. But you believe all of that. And I kind of like the way John Sales handles it in Howling, too. Yes. The way he handles the tragedy with the relationship. And it's got a bit of a, a bit of a stinger ending, but it's yes. still, it still makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and, the, and that's the thing is that I think all of the great werewolf films in the Howling and American Werewolf in London kind of honed in on these three aspects of the 1941 formula and said that um, you, you need a great lead performance of the person who's cursed. They need to have a really solid relationship with another character within the film. And that is going to amplify the tragedy that unfolds at the end of the film. However, Hollywood turns around and says, yeah, but it's the werewolf transformation that we need to put like all of our money into and make no mistake in 1941, that werewolf transformation for long, it's fantastic. And the look of the werewolf is fantastic. And I think yeah. everybody is so, I, I don't know, just blown away by that transformation. They forget those first three elements. 
Um, and they come back and say, well, we're going to make this werewolf movie and we're going to have this amazing transformation. Yeah, but you forgot the other three things that make yeah. all the great werewolf films, which is the relationship, the the lead actor, and the pathos that you feel for that. And then also it has to have this tragedy element that works. Okay? So here's how I'm going through <laughs> it in my head. Benicio Del Toro's Lawrence Talbot. Okay, that's that's the first thing you have to grade this thing on, right? Uh, and I think you guys have touched upon this, and and I I 100% believe Benicio is one of the best actors that are out there right now acting. Um, and I get it. If you read anything leading up to this film, he is a huge Wolfman fan. Apparently, he like collects yeah. all of this stuff, right? Um, and, and I get it, right? But um, I am not a fan of Benicio's drowsy, subdued, emo performance yeah i was waiting for emo to come out That's yeah like, it's not relatable he's just whatsoever. not for this movie he's no. just not for this movie and i'll should tell this you movie, this movie should have been called cry emo cry emo yes and i'm telling you the thing that uh heard it right out of the gate is the introduction of this character is seen on stage doing hamlet and he's freaking terrible that is the worst Hamlet I've ever seen. And then you see him brooding in the backstage when Emily comes and tell, talks about his brother's missing and stuff like that. I, I am not a fan of emo, del Toro, Benicio, whatever. Emo, emo del Toro. I like emo that. del Toro. I'm emo del Toro is, is no bueno in this film. Emo del emo. Either way, it's. It's, it works. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I may not never call him anything else other than. That. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, he really is a one note performance um, and he's not good at wooing Emily Blunt. I mean, there's, there's no chemistry. We'll, we'll there's get on zero that in chemistry second. between yeah. those two. But yeah, Emo Del Toro, I, I, again, it's unfair to measure his performance against the original Lawrence Talbot. And all you had to do was get an actor who is relatable and can convey some humanity that you can attach yourself to and kind of go, um, I like how you said it, Sammy. What's scary about the Wolfman is it can happen to anybody, right? There's no lineage. You get bit, boom, ordinary yeah. guy, and all of a sudden having to deal with that internal struggle. That's all you had to do, and you had a successful werewolf movie. You don't have to go all emo. Part of the myth is stay off of the moors. Yeah. Part of the myth is... Don't go outside the lines. Yep. The rules of society. Don't, 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 don't worry. Don't stray from the path. So it's all there as a metaphor. So it's there as a horror metaphor, but it's there to show, you know, stay within the boundaries, be a good little soldier or bad things will happen to you. And yeah. that's part of the terror of the werewolf is that, you know, Troy and me and Brad are walking through England and Brad says, Hey, I got an idea. Let's walk across the moors. And, I say that's not a good idea, and then Troy says, "Hey, you know, Benicio del Emo did that. That wasn't a good idea." Either. <laughs> and we all make a joke and decide to walk across the moors, and now we're all werewolves. Yeah, except we're wearing North Face jackets instead of. <laughs> no, it's it's exactly right, and and I, I again. This guy is depressed, and he's all emo even before he gets bitten. So I don't know what the difference is between his character. Yeah, he's, all, he's almost a werewolf before he's a werewolf. Yeah, he is. So that brings to the second thing in the original, you're looking at this father son relationship and you go, okay, well let's, let's see how they handle this aspect of it. 
all right, you get lots of resentment between um, Emo uh, Del Toro and, and Anthony Hopkins. And Benicio is holding a grudge for being locked up in a sanatorium. Hey, that's kind of cool. Like, I, I like that aspect. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. And this is the part of the remake where they really deviate from the original script and the original idea, right? Because in the original, it's it's really the strength and bond of the father and son and the father kind of releasing his son from this curse. But you get this new twist, and now you have to gauge, does it work for you? And big spoiler, again, the the father is the werewolf who's been biting people and turned like both sons into him. And uh, because in my head, the first time I saw it, I'm like, well, this werewolf like tears through everybody. Why didn't he tear through Benicio Del Emo um, when he got bit? And it was, oh, well, it's his dad. His dad just was turning him. So there's some conscious effort not to kill him, but make him a werewolf. Yeah. Which is weird because then he proceeds to try to destroy him, I guess. I I don't understand that. Yeah, I don't know the motivation. Yeah. I, I don't need, I, I I assume the motivation is because he didn't embrace his bestiality. Now he wants to destroy him or something of that nature. And again, I, I think the motivation is more, we need a big fight at the end of the movie. Well, that that's, <laughs> you get a big battle between two werewolves and some questionable werewolf physics. Like they can Dude, do that. That I'm sorry. I, I'm usually not one that like says like editing in a scene is really bad, but the editing in that last fight scene is atrocious. You, it is atrocious. You didn't like the sideway flippy thing to the wall when he's trying to jump on him. I was like, what, what happened? And yeah. There's, then there's these like hard cuts and then you're like, they're in two different spots. And you're like, okay, there's like literally 10 motions that we cut out right there. I have no idea what's going on now. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very sloppy. And, uh, I can remember being in the theater and almost laughing at the idea because I didn't see the twist coming. It seems silly now, but, uh, at the time, I didn't. Honestly, I didn't read anything about the movie, and I kind of went into a cold, and uh, I didn't see the twist coming. And uh, once I started to pick up on it, I was like, well, surely we won't see Anthony Hopkins as a werewolf, and we did. And uh, I kind of laughed about it, because I remember thinking, did he have gray hair? He seemed like he had gray <laughs> hair compared to uh, Lawrence. Yeah. And uh, they're two totally different werewolves. And, you know, it's really a shame because I think some of the best dialogue in the movie is actually is in the scenes with Benicio and and Anthony Hopkins. There's a great line where he says, never look back at the past. It's a wilderness of horrors. Yeah. And then he kind of dry deadpan says, I'm glad you're home. I'm glad you're home. Yeah. He always ends. He says something really creepy and he's like, I'm glad you're here, son. (laughs) It's like, yeah, he does say Lawrence. He says Lawrence 500 times. Yeah. Lawrence. That's right. Well, the way he says Lawrence is so eloquent. It, it is kind of cool. It's good. Yeah. But okay. So I mean, some of that dialogue is really good, but it, it's really a shame because the movie, by the time it gets to those scenes, the father son stuff, and I, I don't like the way it plays out. I, I totally agree with you on all that. I wish they would have just, I wish they would have just stuck to the original idea of the father son and the sacrifice that needs to be made. But I have to say probably my favorite parts of this movie are the father son stuff, even yeah. though it's ham handed. It, 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 well, I'll say this. I, I don't, I don't know if I like the twist. Here's what I, I do like. I appreciate they did something different with it. However, the twist, in my opinion, works if the relationship is set up somewhere else so that the tragedy can play out. So now you're left with Emily Blunt and Benicio Del Emo, and there's zero chemistry between those two. I'm going to ask for a friend on this one. What is the twist you guys are talking about? 
the the twist where Anthony Hopkins is a werewolf. Oh, but I thought you knew that the whole time. I didn't know I, that the whole time. So that's why oh. I was curious. I was curious because you had not seen the film. And I just said that when I saw the film in the theater, I didn't see it coming. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. Uh, I've seen it this time. It's it's very much telegraphed. I mean, it's there the whole time. It, it okay. is. Uh, it's but oh. I didn't pick up on to, to about the asylum or the sanitarium portion. I'm like, yeah. dude, I, yeah. yeah. But I don't know if that scene. I don't recall that scene in the theatrical cut. So I wonder if that scene's even. I don't remember him visiting Lawrence in the uh, in the asylum. So that would that would make the twist that much more impactful because I believe if and I could be wrong, I could definitely be wrong. I think they try to hide the twist more in the theatrical cut to kind of give it some pop. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I it's not a great story beat for me, but I, I do like they do something different. The problem is now you're left with, well, the relationship that you have to care about is one that has I don't know. I, <laughs> Well, so that gets to the last element. It's the tragedy of the story, right, of the Wolfman story. So they they went in a different direction with the father-son thing. So now, where is the tragedy going to come from? Well, it's going to stem from Lawrence and Gwen's relationship, which is about ex- as exciting as watching, like, two coma patients communicate. I mean, that's that's what their relationship is down to. It is boring. There's nothing to it. They um, and, and here's the thing. I think when they looked at this, they go, holy cow, we may, they may have thought they, they nailed the, the wolf transformation. We'll talk about that in a second, but they understood there's no tragedy in this film because the relationship doesn't work. So if your relationship doesn't work, where's your tragedy going to come from? It's going to come from a story element or a plot device, right? So they shot three endings to this thing. Did you go back and watch those three? No. Okay, I them yet, so in the director's cut, the way it ends is he like scratches the the detective, right? So Hugo Weaving is going to be a werewolf, and then um, Emily Blunt's going to shoot him, but she can't shoot him, so he starts gnawing on her neck, and then she shoots him, and so the werewolf dies, and now Emily Blunt is alive. She's going to be a werewolf, right? Which, I, hey, if Emily Blunt was a werewolf, I would still marry her because... She's Emily Blunt, right? So it's only one day a month. Exactly. Um, well, you deal with that now when you're married to a female. So, <laughs> oh God. Oh, do I, yeah, oh no. <laughs> I did not say that. I, yeah, All I'm, right. I'm, I'm in sorry, trouble. Listen. I'm in guilty by association because you said oh, that. Oh boy. Oh uh, boy. Oh man. Woo! Uh, that was a low hanging fruit on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. oh, wow. Anyways, so the the ending that shows up in the director's cut is she's alive, but she's going to be a werewolf too. So they went back and shot another ending, whereas Benicio del Toro um, bites her and then she's dead, and and he's alive. And then there's another one where he bites her and she shoots him, and they're both dead, and the only one that's left alive. So they knew going into this that there was no tragedy in the film. If if you take away the father element, you got two werewolves like fighting. Um, where's the tragedy going to come from? Well, it's going to come from this last little plot twist, and they couldn't decide which one was more impactful, which meant that none of it was impactful. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you guys have talked about this. That leaves only one other thing to contend with, which is where I think most movie makers today in Hollywood kind of put the emphasis on werewolf movies is 
well, we got to have a cool transformation and the werewolf's got to look cool. And I agree with you guys. Like I, it's meant on the transformation. I mean, nothing's going to beat his original work in American werewolf in London. Uh, that, that just, nobody's come close. And even the howling now, you know, I revisited howling. I'm like, yeah, nobody's coming close to those two films. And yeah, the, I always think about the three, my three favorites are, well, obviously I got four, the original Wolfman, the howling American werewolf in London. One that doesn't get talked about enough, though, is uh, Eric Redmayne. Teen Wolf. <laughs> I love Teen Wolf. Um, but Eric Red's uh, Bad Moon, which is a... Uh, oh, a yeah. Movie. That's a good which one. Is, got a Steve Johnson, who's also a special effects guy. Got a really good werewolf in it. And if you haven't seen that, you should check it out, because it's a great movie about a dog being a hero, which yeah. is very rare. Yeah, that is a good film. No, I mean, I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I, I like the CGI effects to a certain degree. They just, they're, they're not going to compete with what came out in the 80s, right? Because the 80s were all practical and just mind-blowing. You, you get a little bit of a Van Helsing slash League of Extraordinary Gentlemen vibe. A little, but it's not, those are terrible. Um, yeah, better. It's, it's better. better yeah. 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 And and I'll say this, I love the look of this werewolf because the first thing I thought about was like Marvel Comics Werewolf by Night. It oh, yeah. really looked like that. It looked like that werewolf they just took off of that Marvel Comics page. It it looked fantastic. I really love the look of this werewolf. I love that Rick Baker's werewolves look like they come from Rick Baker. Yes. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, there's some signature to his creations that just kind of bleeds through. And I think his American Werewolf in London is the pinnacle of werewolf design. It is the greatest looking werewolf of all time. And I still am amazed to this day how much they did with a guy on a wheelbarrow walking on his, uh, walking on his hands with a big rubber head yeah. in the middle of the city. And how yeah. it still magic, works. Man. If you go back and watch American Werewolf, that scene still works. It's magic. It, it's yeah. film magic. But no, I mean. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And the sanatorium, that sequence you talked about, Brad, it's fantastic. I love they're all surrounding him going, hey, you're not going to change. We're going to prove to you you're not a werewolf. And he's like, no, I'm a werewolf and I'm going to kill everybody. And he does that. So <laughs> I, I, I like that sequence. I, here's the thing. When when the werewolf action happens, which is like the last hour of the film, it's it's actually a pretty good film. But that first hour is terrible. Um, yeah. but I'm glad we all thought that because I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't the only one because I'm sitting there going, Oh man, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> yeah, there's there's not much, but I mean, ultimately, I like I said, I I think they they had the recipe book and they go, yep, we need these four ingredients, right? We need a really good Lawrence Talbert. We really need a really good relationship. If we're not going to do the father son thing. It's got to it's got to be somewhere else. We need tragedy, and then we need a great werewolf. And they instead of following the recipe, they go, yeah, let's let's just um, make our own stuff up in these things. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't think it works at all. Um, the great example of, at least in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, it's a great example of, it feels like a Hollywood blockbuster version of a monster movie. It just yeah. feels like, I don't know. It feels like the Godzilla movies to me, the new Godzilla movies, like they're fine. I can watch them, but at the end, when they're over, I'm like, whatever, <laughs> I mean, they don't really stick with me. You know what I mean? They uh, they have some great moments. Yeah, but, but they, they get don't. away from what makes Godzilla movies Godzilla movies. Yeah, it's exactly. too much like humans. Like I don't want to know about this weird company that's trying to take over the world. Like what? I don't need that. I don't yeah. need that. So the question I need to ask this because I didn't do enough research. I didn't do any research going into this, but 
Universal had not decided on a dark universe yet at this right. point, right? Mm-hmm. Not yet, yeah. So they were going to move into that next. Because I, th- I thought that maybe the werewolf, if they could have brought the Wolfman character into a modern context, that maybe they could have done something with it. But then I've seen some of the dark universe stuff. And although I like the mummy because it's kind of ridiculous and because I'm a Tom Cruise fan like Troy. Uh, Boy, that was a good nap for me when I watched that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I fell asleep so fast in that movie. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it for what it is, but uh, I didn't watch the Frankenstein one. Remember the they made a Frankenstein one with uh, Aaron Eckhart. Yeah, yeah. I think it's called I Frankenstein. Maybe. I Frankenstein, yes. And they were really trying to do this, and I thought, well, the Wolfman's got to work, but those two failed so miserably that they just dropped the whole thing. I think. But knowing Universal, they got a lot of money. They might still try to bring that back. I, I think. I mean, they they it's cyclical, right? I mean, they did that. Dracula. Well, then the Invisible Man, the Invisible yeah. Man, they kind of brought that into like a modern setting. And that's fantastic, right? That's yeah. a great yeah. film. That's it's a little over long, but it's a it's a great it's a great movie. No, I did. I got some uh, the women's old, rights stuff back in there because I did make the bad period joke earlier. Yeah, there you Sorry. go. Um, no, the Brandon Fraser mummy stuff. I mean, I I, I those are fun adventure films. Yeah, so those are just for me. Those are great like Sunday matinee kind yes. of movies. Yeah. I like one and two a lot. Part three, I like the cast a lot, but it really kind of starts to drag its ass on part three. Yeah, it does. Got a great cast, and I thought it would be amazing, but unfortunately, it's not as amazing as I wanted it to be. But I like part one. Kind of like the Wolfman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they're fun. They're they're just big, silly, fun movies, kind of like Jungle Cruise, the movie you Troy won't watch. But <sighs> I know. <laughs> I, I I feel like I'm I I'm disappointing Emily. I will probably watch it. I just wasn't excited. I you, was probably jealous you, of the Rock. I wasn't excited to watch it either. To be honest with you, but it turned out to be okay. But I I, I think that all this stuff will come back around again, and I hope that they bring the Wolfman into a modern context. Now, wolf, werewolf movies get made all the time. Do you guys, by chance, well, before I forget to ask this question, do you guys happen to have a uh, a werewolf film that you recommend to people that people probably don't see much? I hate to put you on the spot, but do you happen to have one? There's there's two. Um, one of them, our friends over at the VHS Files podcast just talked about, which is Dog Soldiers. Like, I love Dog Soldiers. And I think that's oh, okay. a, yeah. That's an interesting yeah. take on the werewolf genre. And then... I love the, effect. the effects of Dog Soldiers is amazing because it's very simple. Yeah. It works. And the other one I like, because again, it's a different take on it, is uh, Ginger Snaps. I like the first Ginger Snaps a lot. That's one of those ones where you hear the concept and you're like, how did nobody think of that? I, I know. And, but it's, you know, it's a nice little independent film. But again, if you look at some of the elements and you look at the relationships and stuff that sort of make the tragedy more tragic in, in a werewolf film, it's all about the relationship, right? So um, whereas Dog Soldiers is sort of an action adventure werewolf film that I think is fun, um, it's like a man on a mission movie. Right? Yeah, it is. It, it's like the guy werewolf movie. Ginger Snaps for me is the one that I would go, hey, if, if you want to see an entirely different take on this. And um, I, I I think it it has a lot to say, too. And it's a really it's a intelligent werewolf. film. Yeah, it's really smart. smart. Smart werewolf movie, yeah. Brad, you got any? Did you I, I actually just watched that, um, what's it called, Werewolves Within. Um, oh, yeah. I, I liked it. It's a core. It's a horror comedy version, but it still got some good scares. Um, that one, and I know Sammy, you're gonna probably mention these, but that first Underworld movie I think is actually pretty good. The first one, I think anything after that's kind of bad, but 
yeah. I'll go to bat for that first one. Yeah, I like the first two. I, Anything after the first two, I really start to dial out, but I still like them. Yeah, I like the second one a lot for some reason. Yeah, like a lot. For, yeah. For reasons that involve leather suits on certain people. Oh, yes, yes. Yep. I mean, I mean come on now. But uh, those, 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 I agree with those. I agree with those. I'll say the Bad Moon one I mentioned. Uh, that's one you guys should check out. If you haven't checked it mm-hmm. out, you should check it out. It's these are B movies, so you're not going to get the kind of big bombastic kind of greatness here. But this one is the most B movie of them all. And I watched this about ten years, maybe maybe ten, eight or ten years ago. It's called Big Bad Wolf, and it stars Richard Tyson, who uh, is a very well known kind of erotic cinema actor. Uh, uh, Two Moon Junction, things like that, and uh, he plays a werewolf who's also, I think, either a stepdad or a bad parent. Who, when he turns into a werewolf, talks trash. <laughs> what? <Nice. laughs> it's, it's hilariously bad. Oh, like I'll kill you now. It's like he's in full werewolf makeup. He's like, "Come on, chump!" You know, it's just it's like black exploitation slash. It's it's really it's out there. So it's not a great movie, but you'll never forget it once you see it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I have a soft spot for uh, Silver Bullet as well. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, so that has an amazing, amazing like Oscar caliber performance by Gary Busey in it. Gary Busey, yes. That is so dead on perfect. If you ever have had a crazy uncle in your life, yeah. No, the, yeah. it's a genre. I, I can't, I can't sit here and like recommend a Paul Nashy film unless you want to go slumming. But um, again, the, the, he does the, fight a tiger in one of them. I think we reviewed it back on the show a long time ago, where a tiger. Like, through a poor tiger on top of him off screen. Yeah, it's it, it's weird how the Spanish kind of tackled that genre and specifically him. But I find I find all of the films that he did fascinating for one reason or another, either based on like the exotic location and what he ended up doing with some of the scripts, all the way down to the really trashy, just garbage ones. Are it? They're like watching it. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I can't explain his, it. It's just junk. His, his werewolf is cool looking, right? It is cool. Something. Yeah trashy and kind of gross about his werewolf i don't know what it is every time i see pictures of it i'm always reminded that it's it's kind of slutty (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a good description he's got the he's got like the seinfeld pirate puffy shirt sometimes yeah 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 pretty sure he shows his nipples a lot i don't know he's always rocking that deep v yeah he is you know i don't need a lot of werewolf nipples uh (laughs) oh god Benicio Del Emo is rocking a deep V in this, though. That's what I'm talking about. There's the moment. So there's what I like to call Hulk Hogan acting in that as great as that sanatorium scene is, there's these great moments where Benicio Del Toro will turn to the camera and he'll huff like Kane Hodder does as Jason, right? Yeah. And he'll do this kind of stuff. And it's you can tell that like he's living like a like a lifelong dream being in this werewolf makeup. Yeah. And those moments are what this movie needed more of. I agree. It needed more, it needed more glee. It, and- it could still be a tragedy but it needed to be more gleeful. And it's kind of surprising coming from Joe Johnston, whose films kind of ooze glee. Well, the, the, the 1941, I, it, the 1941 version doesn't have comedy, but you know, Lontani Jr. has some charm and charisma in some elements, especially when he's interacting with some folks and you can see him, that weight just hit him the minute that he understands he's got the curse. And again, that's the type of performance that you want from this that is that is really going to sell it, I think. Yeah, he's not a wet blanket. That's the that's the difference. Yeah, the difference here is that Benicio, at some point, once he realizes what he is, he's a he's a wet blanket. He's 
kind of like woe is me all the time <laughs> yeah and i'll say this i think a lot of people kind of moan about the cgi in the film the the cgi for the creatures i was the only the only time the cgi got on my nerves is when they tried to add cgi to the landscapes and it doesn't work like i think the setting and the landscapes look great but then all of a sudden when you go oh that's a cgi backdrop or this that's some of the stuff that i don't think aged very well and those fights, that fight scene at the end, there's some parts of that that look a little wonky. It does, yeah. yeah. It's a little bit of that, uh, it's going as great a film as Blade 2 is, but remember that wrestling match in Blade 2? Oh, all CG? yes. It looks a little rough. Yeah, I yeah. agree. You always run across those, right? So, you know, it is what it is. But, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I'm not the only one that felt the same way about this movie. Like, I almost felt, like, guilty, like, I picked this movie. And then I remember Brad did, so I was like, oh. <laughs> No, yeah. Well, our listeners picked it, so that's their fault. Well, yeah, I, I'll say this. I'm glad I finally watched it because it, it yeah. helped me put into context. Uh, honestly, it helped me put into context why I love the first one so much. It's like those four elements. And that's why I wanted to go back and watch The Howling and some other stuff is like, hey, um, I, I know American Werewolf in London just nails all four of those elements in, in different aspects and they knock it out of the ballpark. That's why if I, were, if I were to rank werewolf movies, it goes like the 41's Wolfman and American Werewolf in London. But I thought, well, where's the howling sit on that? Um, I mean, it spawned like nine sequels. Well, how good was the first one from Dante? And after I watched it, I'm like, yeah, they hit all four elements in different ways, but they understood the recipe and it probably gets that number three spot because it knows exactly what to do with this particular creature and the Lawrence Talbot-like character. You know, D. Wallace is, is the Lawrence Talbot character. Um, and, and how you come to care and feel for her and even the relationship she has ends up making the tragedy what it is at the end of The Howling. So, you know, Dante knew what that recipe was and he played with it and, and you know, came to the table with another classic. I, I feel like, I feel like, you know, everybody working on this film knew the recipe and was trying to tackle it from a different angle, but nobody was on the same page on, on these things. Yeah, it's amazing how on paper this film should work. Oh, it, it should just be doesn't. amazing. Yeah, that's a it good sh- point. It just does not. I'm actually surprised, to be honest with you, um, that it made as much money as it did. I uh, yeah, great piece, and you know, as much as Benicio del Toro is a great actor and stuff, he's not really a box office draw. I don't think. Right. No. Anthony Hopkins is. I wouldn't call him a box office draw. I call him a very well respected actor, but. You know, the I, I feel like I feel like in the aughts, though, like 2010 ish, you know, there was a time there where movies just kind of made money regardless of the quality. Like there's that stretch. It's in like for like 10 years where just stuff came out and people went and saw it regardless. Yeah. Um, and this kind of falls into that space. Um, and, and, you know, we joked about it coming out of Valentine's Day, but people do go see movies together on valentine's day and it's like i don't want to see that movie valentine's day let's see the wolfman um and sure okay we'll do that yeah yeah yeah. i mean every audience is different but yeah i mean it made 31 million dollars that first weekend and it only made like 66 domestically so it made half of its domestic run in the first weekend so yeah Yeah, i mean it completely died off yeah i think word of mouth killed this word of mouth was probably yeah not great yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think it's time for the question. I'll, I'll start with you, Sammy. So we, we kind of all agree on paper, this should have been a masterpiece of, of cinematic horror uh, and, and been another home run for Universal. It didn't pan out that way, but you've had a chance to revisit it. So the question is, is Benicio Del Emo's take on Lawrence Talbert in The Wolfman, is it a bomb? Yeah, as much as I have a soft spot for this movie, um, you know, logic always prevails. This movie is a bomb, and it's a bomb because it's completely misguided. It's uh, It doesn't know what it wants to be. Troy talked about it in depth with the tragedy aspects. Uh, it's a period piece, which is always a gamble. It's always a gamble. Even it, uh, It's always been a gamble. Unless you go full-on fantasy, I think people tend to, I don't know, just period pieces don't seem to like be big mega blockbusters, but it's, it's, it's a bomb because it's, it's just so misguided. It just feels, it feels like a movie that's set on a shelf for two years and nobody knew what to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And that's exactly what happened. Right. I mean, it it feels like a studio movie where they felt like they had a great idea. And like we've talked about, everything was great on paper. They had the right people signed up. The money was there and it just all fell apart on them. Uh, from the get-go, really, it sounds like. Yeah. It's, it's a bomb. That's fair. All right, Brad, your pick. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to agree with Sammy and say that this film is is a bomb. I'm, I'm really close to that not a bomb, bomb territory. Um, but when I think back on it, it's like, this thing has like one good scene in it. And that's like the I will kill you all scene. And that's it. Yeah. And if that's not in the movie, then this movie completely sucks. So, um, Yeah. I think you could skip this one. There's way better werewolf movies than this one. Yeah, and I'm not even holding the CGI against it. Like I think the CGI in this film of its transformation is actually really good. Um, but it's just the story sucks. You got to get through the first hour of this movie before it becomes even watchable. So yeah, I'm going to say it's a bomb. Okay. Well, I, I got to say, I never really wanted to watch this film but after watching it i really wanted to love it especially as the more i read about it and i would go back and even think about a couple of things and go through some scenes and go well well, maybe this works in context if you were to do it this way but i I gotta say at the end of it i'm glad they tried something different actually in in some of these script beats and and they tried to play with some of that formula to a certain degree but um you know (laughs) I, I might have liked this film a little bit more if it was called anything but the Wolfman and they didn't use those characters from the 1941 version. I mean, if it was, if this was just called a werewolf movie and you had, you know, John and Sally and, you know, change it all up and you might be playing with the werewolf mythos, but you're not trying to do a direct remake of the 1941, it, it might have been easier to digest as something just kind of uh, Sunday matinee-ish fun. However, the it the biggest thing that this thing does is it does not give you the werewolf tragedy. It 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 it, it tries and and they tried to pick like what scenario could be the worst thing for the surviving characters. Well, let's go with that. But you know what? That scenario doesn't mean squat unless you care for those relationships and you care for that character. So at the end of the day, you just get a plot point and a plot twist at the end of the film. So I, I think it's a bomb, 
but it's one that I could easily see somebody coming back and taking these elements and working them a little bit different. And it actually would have been a fun film. Like I, this is one of those that I think if somebody who, I don't know, was competent with taking, you know, just the stuff that was laying around and you got a good editor and, you know, redid the story a little bit. And maybe they tried to do that three or four times over well, the years. They had three editors on this film. They had three editors on this film and all three of them are great editors. Yeah. And it's, I don't know what it is, why they couldn't get it all together. If it's studio interference or somebody, but I don't know, this thing, this thing lacks like a singular vision is my yeah. biggest, it's the biggest problem. Like this movie is, by committee. yeah, this is like a great example of a movie by committee and the dangers of that. And if you don't have a clear, concise vision of what you're trying to do, you, you get this, which is just, uh, it just, it's limp. It just lays there. Yeah. Is so that episode 69 joke there. Uh, <laughs> My daughter's limp episode riddled, <laughs> riddled with jokes like that. Well, Hey, that was a great discussion, man. I, I actually was surprised how much we got out of that in terms of being able to sit down and, uh, I don't know. Talk about talk about the Wolf Man. I mean, I I was kind of like with Sammy. You watched that first hour, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, what are we gonna say?" Uh, unless I, I mean, unless I'm totally crazy and was like, uh, the first hour was boring. Is that all I have yeah, to say we, about we, it? Yeah, we we definitely <laughs> had more more uh, substance in our discussion than the Wolf Man actually had. So that was right. good. Yeah. Well, well that's what I always say. The, the talking about movies. Doesn't matter how good a movie is or how bad a movie is. If if you like to talk about movies, you can always find discussion about it. Oh, you can always. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, listen. Next week we're continuing with horror movies because it's October, and that's like the fun thing to do. We're gonna do another remake, Brad, and it's we one. Are yes, it came up, uh, which is funny because last year I thought it was I thought it was funny. Like all of the suggestions that were coming through of, oh, if you're doing horror movies, do this one. The Wolfman obviously came up because it's a remake of The Wolfman. This one uh, came up a lot, uh, like might have been double digits in terms of how many people were going on Twitter or Facebook or sending us emails and saying, if you need a suggestion, you guys got to revisit this one. Uh, and Sammy, I think you guys have talked about this one before, but we're going to take a stab and uh, see what I did there, a little Halloween joke there. <laughs> yeah, stab, stab. Yeah, we're going to next week talk about 1988's The Blob, which is a remake of The Blob with Steve McQueen. Yeah. Remake Wasn't done. Rob Zombie a tie to uh, The Blob remake as well, like a, a while ago? Wasn't he going to remake The Blob, I thought? I don't know. That never happened, thankfully. Thank God. Maybe. Jesus. Maybe. I'm one of those few people who enjoy Rob. I know. I know. Don't say anything. I enjoy Rob Zombie films. I think it's because they're so Rob Zombie. <laughs> I uh, think like Lords of Salem isn't bad, but the rest of that stuff you can keep. So I I, I may actually find myself defending Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 to a certain degree. Oh, yeah. Troy Sauer. Yeah. <laughs> the it director's is an insane, cut. Yeah. It is, it is an insane movie. <laughs> And that's that's why I would defend it because when I sat down to watch that director's cut, I'm like, what is going on here? Uh, and that would be one I would love to talk about at some point, more so than his his first one. Um, and I can't yeah. I can't sit here and say Halloween Two is a great film, but I can't say it's something unique that I hadn't seen before done with that genre, which makes it for an interesting conversation. Yep, yeah. that's one way to put it. 
That's the only argument I would have about Rob Zombie. Is sorry, behind the scenes, you guys listen to the show. My daughter's peeking in here quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> his films, his films are they just they ooze Rob Zombiness. Yes, they smell like uh, peyote and uh, the Dragula. So yeah, gasoline, <laughs> and uh, they just they just come across as so Rob Zombie ish that uh, I'll kind of defend them just for that reason. Yeah, they 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 have their own style. So, yeah. well, they're not great. Yeah, no, no, uh, <laughs> not cinematic masterpieces. But yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about horror movies from the '80s. So we're we're going back to '88. Brad, if anybody wants to send us some recommendations, we're starting to put stuff together for 2022 because we've already got this year planned out. Yep. But yep. Um, uh, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com for your suggestions and your comments. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I think Instagram and Facebook are back up now. So you yeah, know, they're working. Can, we all survived uh, the uh, big Facebook yeah. apoc- apocalypse. Yeah. I, bet, yeah. I bet productivity today was at an all time high because <laughs> Facebook <laughs> and Instagram were, yeah. were down. So anyway, you can reach out on those platforms and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to rewatching the blob remake. It's been a while for me. So this is a good excuse to go back and revisit. Yeah. Looking forward to that episode. I think you guys are going to like what you see. Did uh, do you remember how far back it was that people can go and find your guys's review of it, Sammy? I know you probably don't know the uh, number, but how many years ago was it? Well, it wasn't that long ago. Might have been just last year. Oh wow! Okay, uh, give me a second here. We've actually done a couple of Blob movies. We did a uh, uh, Return of the Blob, which is ridiculous. The Larry Hagman film, right? Yeah, the Larry Hagman film. I believe it was episode four sixty eight. Okay, not four sixty nine. Not 469, unfortunately. Oh, well, listen. Uh, yeah, go yeah. go to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema and look up f- episode 468, and you can hear them discuss 1988's The Blob. It's paired with uh, John Carpenter's Vampires on that episode. Oh, what a Ooh. banger episode, man. Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good That was a fun episode. That's fantastic. Well, if they want to get a hold of you, Sammy... And uh, I obviously yeah. Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, like 500,000 episodes or whatever to go back through. You can through. find me just about anywhere. Sammy GGTMC on Instagram. You can find me uh, on Facebook. It's Sam Uri. You can just Google Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema and you'll find me. If you really want to talk to me, I'm not, uh, I'm not standoffish. I'll talk to you. Sweet. Just reach out to me. It's getting you to shut up is the hard part. Hey, yo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially when you bring me on episode 69. Yeah. Oh. Didn't even realize that happened. That was awesome. Didn't didn't even think that through. <laughs> <laughs> and I could have had I, oh, sorry. Could have had so much more plans. Uh, it's, that's all right. I think I think we uh I think we did enough of our uh, Got Beavis our quota. Yep. Butthead stick there. Well, listen, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, afternoon, evening. Thank you for downloading the episode. You know, send us an email. Tell us what you're thinking about these films that uh, we're talking about. And uh, hey, listen, if you love 2010's The Wolfman, we'd love to hear your side of the story and why you think it uh, deserves to be called something other than a bomb. But uh, we will check you next week when we talk about 1988's The Blob. And uh, stay spooky. Bark at the moon. Adios. (laughs) 